0: The test of a man is how much he will bear for a cause which he knows to be right. How long will he stand in the depths of despair? How much will he suffer and fight? There are many to serve when the victory is near, and few are the hurts to be borne. But it calls for a leader of courage to cheer the men in a battle forlorn. It is the way you hold out against odds that are great, that proves what your courage is worth. It is the way that you stand to the bruises of fate, that shows up your stature and girth. And victory is nothing but proof of your skill, veneered with a glory that's thin, unless it is a proof of unfaltering will, and unless you have suffered to win. playing those bad lads that's a hell of a name
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Sports Talk. It is Friday, February the 16th, 2024. I'm here to remind you that the only difference between Joe Biden and a bucket of shit is, in fact, the bucket. I am your host, Paul Fleuray, joined by the one, the only, J.B. White Rattler Gator, my good friend. How are you doing today, J.B.?
2: He's up, Paul. He's up. Huh? <laughs> I know. We just
1: started. We just started. I'm already dumping on the man. You know, I mean... Look, it's in my defense, in my defense it's really really easy to do, JB. Like I don't even have to try. Like it just kind of happens, you know? Like like the sun rising I was waking up every morning shitting on Joe Biden. It's just kind of where we're at, you know? Yeah. Um man, interesting week both in sports oh and and in uh in the in the political world out there, man. Um you know, it's uh Stop me where you've heard this one before, JB. Bad news breaks for Democrats. Mass shooting happens shortly afterwards. Is it me or do these things kind of seem to be mutually exclusive to one another? Really weird.
2: Really weird. You like, know? What the hell kind of programming is going on here?
1: Uh, well, the thing is, and you know what encourages me, is people really aren't going for it anymore, JB. Like, even normal people on my Facebook are like, so wait, you mean to tell me that... Travis Kelsey put up a post about gun control two days before this shooting and that, you know, it it took attention away from Robert, Hur essentially saying that Joe Biden is nothing short of a walking vegetable in the White House. Like it just it's like clockwork with these people. And I, I saw it on my Facebook. I You know, I made a I made a kind of vague, nondescript comment about it. Right. And I was surprised at the comments I got saying, well, is this what we see every time bad news is coming against them? They want to come for the guns when bad news comes for them. Um, just super interesting, man. It's been an interesting, and of course, of course, if you if you missed it yesterday, Fannie Willis absolutely imploded on the stand, and it was amongst one of the most glorious things I've ever seen in my life. What are your What's your quick take on that, JP? You know, I'm doing all of
2: this moving. I'm sitting here. I'm distracted, and I'm seeing these reports, and I'm saying, "Sweet, what in the?" I'm just, cause I want to whoop some ass. You know, I just want to whoop right ass and Wade's ass and I, it's embarrassing. You know, it's not, it's not just embarrassing to black Americans or to lawyers. It's embarrassing to Americans. Like what right. in the hell are y'all doing? And, right. um, <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, on a certain level, on a certain level, it's a beautiful thing,
1: it, you know, um, Fuck around and find out, right, JB? Like, I remember that time that Melania Trump said to anybody that hits her husband, he hits back ten times harder, and it just seems the Trump curse is so real. I mean, she was, she literally on the stand yesterday said, yeah, no, I didn't disclose my, my romantic relationship. That's a felony. And you just admitted that on the stand, and today she's not testifying, so clearly her team was like, look, No, (laughs) you are not getting your ass back up on that stand because yesterday was an effing train wreck. All right. Not for us, it wasn't, but no, like, um, you know, and it just it just takes me back to what Greta, Greta Van Susteren said when all that happened. You know, yeah, let's just leave the black guy in jail. Right. Like the, the only black guy indicted out of all of them was the one they made sure to leave in jail because, these Democrats, man, they they can't have y'all black Americans finding your voice and speaking up for conservatives or fair elections, can they? No, no, no. They can't have that. No. So, um, you know, obviously, we're, we're hoping everything goes Harrison's way. We're hoping everything goes Trump's way down there. I, You know, I still, JB, I still, and we'll get to the show here in a second, but I still maintain um, a part of me believes that they're torpedoing their own case on purpose. Like it got to discovery and they realized, oh, shit he's not lying. We cannot let this go to trial or we are screwed. A certain part of me thinks that's what's going on here, that they got to discovery and realized that daddy Trump was not telling lies about having the evidence of that election being stolen. So going to be real interesting to see what happens there, man. But they, it was a complete shit show yesterday. Um, <clears throat> speaking of shit show, Nice little segue there. We're going to talk today about uh, we're going to start the show off with what what private equity could mean for college football and college sports in general. It is a slippery slope and not a good one. Um, So we're going to talk about that. We've got an awesome look into women rookie season, which has been um I feel like to a certain degree, it's kind of flown under the radar exactly Mm -hmm. how good he's been at spurts because of how bad the spurs are. They're not getting a lot of coverage, but when has been phenomenal this season, like his numbers aren't like, you know, LeBron rookie season, eye popping, but the intangibles there, the eye test is there. Like you watch him and you're like, Oh man, in three or four years, this is going to be something special, like really special injuries, injuries barred, of course, but, um gonna be something real special we're gonna take a look uh the orlando heat retired shaquille o'neal's number the other night we're gonna take a look at that and we're gonna take a look at some nhl stuff the daytona 500 is is this sunday so we're gonna take a look at that but first gonna take care of a little business friends the first things first is i want to thank you guys so very much for joining me and jb today and for your support also want to remind you guys we were just speaking of that Fannie willis uh disqualification hearing in georgia there is a live stream going on right now on badlands of that event if you want to check that out at any point in time and also want to remind you folks to continue supporting our advertising partners because of course without them there is no Badlands. and i want to remind you guys to please 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 go down there and smash that like button for me and jb it is the biggest metric that rumble uses to rank their shows and rate their shows and me and jb certainly appreciate it so speaking of those advertising partners we're gonna take a quick moment to hear from one of them when we come back we're gonna get into some private equity and college sports and what it means and with us friends we'll be right back Hello Badlanders! We constantly talk about health and different ways to help, and we get many questions about ivermectin and where to get it. That's why we've partnered with EasyRx. They have a huge selection of meds at badlandsmedia.tv easyrx or you can click in the description box below and use the promo code BADLANDS for 10% off your order of $150 or more. EasyRx not only has a huge selection, but also quality assurance, big savings, and fast shipping. If you're looking for ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, or fenbenazole, then head that way today. Don't forget about fenbenazole, friends. They've tested fenbenazole on worms or parasites that can live inside of us without obvious signs and can lead to complications from bowel obstruction to loss of appetite, loss of weight, anemia, lung infection, and liver congestion. Fenbenazole also seems to have different qualities in that some people have stated it helped them in certain areas with cancer as well. Here's a clip to remind us of what has happened when people take fenbenazole.
0: Research that once you have wide metastasis, small cell lung cancer, you're literally a goner. The 0% chance of survival at three to six months of life expectancy, and I was basically told to go home, get my fares in order, and think about hospice. And the next day, I got a call from a large animal veterinarian in western Oklahoma. Who's a college friend and family friend. And he told me this crazy story about a scientist at Merck on the veterinary side who has been doing cancer research on mice, and she had hundreds of mice that she implanted cancers in all the body parts, brain, stomach, liver, pancreas, etc. And her mouse population came down with intestinal parasites, and so she had no choice but to save her research, she gave her all of her mice finbendazole. If you went out to any zoo in the world, they bring in finbendazole truckload, front-end loader, head-high piles in bays because they give that drug to every single animal in the animal kingdom. And one of the oldest and safest it's, drugs around, right? Yeah, it's been around for 40 years.
1: To get your ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, fenbenazole, and more today, head on over to badlandsmedia.tv slash EZRX, that's E-A-S-Y-R-X, and use the promo code BADLANDS for 10% off your order of $150 or more. That's badlandsmedia.tv slash EZRX, promo code So we're going to be talking about private equity and specifically private equity and how it could torpedo college sports as we know it. Uh, The first thing to bring up here, JB, is you had sent me a couple articles on this very topic that kind of relate to it. Very, very interesting articles. The first one is SEC Big Ten Coalition lays plain who's in charge of college sports moving forward. I'll read a little bit of this and then we'll talk to it, JB. If there had been any doubt and there shouldn't have been that a massive restructuring was coming for college athletics June 21st, 2021 should have ended such illusions. That's when United States Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh issued a blistering concurring opinion to a case that the NCAA had just lost 9-0. to That one, NCAA versus Alston, allowed student-athletes to receive any academic award money they might earn. It was a simple case, but Kavanaugh used it to warn College Sports Inc. that it should fix its issues internally because if it came back to the Supreme Court arguing for the preservation of, well, pretty much anything, it was unlikely to find very much sympathy. Quote, I add this concurring opinion to underscore that the NCAA's remaining compensation rules also raise serious questions under the antitrust laws, unquote, Kavanaugh wrote. He also said the NCAA's argument about amateurism was circular and unpersuasive and merely a clever label to fix costs and control label, both of which he signaled could be deemed illegal. I'm not even against his uh, his ruling in that one. Quote, price-fixing labor is price-fixing labor. Kavanaugh continued later, and price-fixing labor is ordinarily a textbook antitrust problem. I'm going to stop it right there, JB, um, because he brings up a good point. And as I was reading that, I, I had a thought as well. Um, the amateur label being used kind of in a false way as a facade Look, uh, my first thought on that is we can watch these kids play college football, college basketball, and we can tell they're not amateurs. I don't care if they're college-aged or not. Their skill level is not an amateur skill level. And And we said this on the show before, JB, before the NIL thing really started blossoming, and that is, look, these kids are helping their schools overall make hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in the long run off their name, their image and their likeness. These kids absolutely positively 150 freaking percent deserve compensation for that. Okay. Otherwise they're slaves. Okay. That's there's no, there's no mental gymnastic you can use. That makes that not a fact that if you were using these kids with no kind of compensation while using their likeness to make yourself hundreds of millions of dollars, that's kind of basically slavery. So just off the first part of that that article, Kavanaugh's ruling and what he had to say about it and potentially the precedent it set for the NCAA moving forward, what's your quick take on that, JB? And you had also said something before the show started about the Big Ten and ACC as well. Um, so let me hear your thoughts, man.
2: Yeah, it, um, it's kind of a, a revolutionary moment in college sports. I, I talk on my show about we're living through – a truly revolutionary moment in world history. This is the college sports version, and you know the fascinating thing, Paul, is um, if if you're in your sixties like I am, you can recall um, all kinds of back and forth in college sports and Olympic sports, amateurism, and all this other kind of stuff. Now, the way the model worked in the United States. Weirdly enough, the colleges were really getting over on a captured labor pool, you know what I mean? A totally captured labor pool, and uh, through a particular sport, football, and that was paying for everything, and paying everybody except primarily those athletes who were the captured labor pool. And there was a certain logic put forward, Uh, that a lot of people accepted, and I think they're a little bit embarrassed these days, if you're 60 plus or whatever, that you accepted this logic because it only made a certain amount of sense when the money involved was within a certain scope. But man, the money really, once Georgia and Oklahoma was successful in that lawsuit on the TV thing, And then uh, the NCAA no longer controlled college (laughs) football television and all that good stuff. Then we had an explosion of games on TV and uh, everybody was happy about that. The money really started to roll in and the logic started to make less and less sense because the salaries just continued ballooning. And these athletes were getting these small stipends, these scholarships. Um, in some type of uh, regulated labor, that wouldn't be applicable to their fellow chemistry students, or you know, music students, or any kind of other student on a college campus who was providing that kind of labor, putting in that kind of intense work. It's just incredible. But here we are now, and we're staring at the precipice of private equity coming in, and. You know, private equity is uh, hand in hand the way I look at it. This is this was my original concern. OK, FSU is sitting there bitching and moaning about being in the ACC and we got to get out and we're going to do by any means necessary. And that if that means we got to go to private equity and get this money from them to pay to get this grant of rights obliterated or uh, pay the penalty. That's what we're going to do. So I was sitting there thinking as a Florida taxpayer, wait a damn minute. You know, these damn private equity people come in. They do their little loop-de-loop stuff. And quite often, their debt imposed, they jet out. They've got their money, and they, left, they leave wreckage. And it's like, wait a minute. The taxpayers of Florida are going to somehow, FSU is going to get us in some kind of thing where we got to pay? No. Hell Mm-mm-mm. no. So that's what I wanted to know uh, about what they were talking about. Um, and there was a particularly interested FSU, um, former quarterback who has this firm, Weatherford capital. And I was like, okay, that sounds like some self-interested stuff that seems like a ready-made problem. And I'm very concerned about the foolishness. Now what I'm, what I'm hearing now is it seems like everything is getting ready to change and it may change rapidly so that there may not even be a need for uh fsu to try and do something in terms of getting out of the acc because the acc may not exist in two years uh if the big ten and the sec are going to drive the train and bring into being an entirely new sports landscape you know for college football at a minimum and perhaps some other college sports as well so Uh, I'm just, you know, people don't understand that uh, these entities, uh, Carlisle Group, whatever, as far as the law is concerned, these are persons, you know, these are uh, as far as the law is concerned, and they take advantage of so much, they get over in so much, and it is a big money thing, an average American really isn't playing in that league. These are big money people who invest in these private equity funds. And then they come in and there's a profit modem that motive that really can get out of hand and they could conceivably destroy rather than enhance. You got to know what you're getting involved with. And so it's like, wow, are we staring at losing? I mean, I know there are a bunch of fans, sports fans around the country who are college sports fans and are we staring at losing that in this mad dash for money right and bigger contracts and um given that these athletes are gonna have to be paid Kavanaugh was pretty clear and it was about time right I mean (laughs) they've been getting over uh, on this captured labor pool so yeah everything's getting ready to change but how is it going to change and is our is our love for college sports getting flushed down the toilet into some corporate race towards what some minor league of some of these sports
1: right um because when you're talking when you're talking private equity you're you're bringing groups like Carlisle and BlackRock and these, exactly. these folks into it. Um, and we know they don't they don't give a damn about the sport or, or any kind of happiness fans had. Do you think maybe what the SEC and Big Ten are trying to do is avoid the private equity thing by setting up or going for a new landscape of college sports? And to preface that, I think some sort of a new landscape is needed. Like for me as, an, as a lifelong ACC fan, when you see – Cal and Stanford in the ACC. These are not Atlantic Coast teams. It's not the ACC anymore. Um, so something new is needed, in my opinion. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that should look like. I'm not the guy that has that plan. Um, but do you think maybe what the SEC and Big Ten is trying to do is subvert the private equity thing before it happens? Or do you think that's going to become a part of what they're trying to do?
2: I I have a feeling there's going to be a component You know what I mean? I think uh, the people uh, in these uh, two major conferences are smart enough. I'll put it this way. I have faith in Greg Sankey, who is the commissioner of the SEC. I think he's done a phenomenal job for the conference, and he's certainly smart enough to know what he has. And uh, I think knows that he does not want it to be gobbled up so that you get this major entity from the outside dictating any further than they already do because you know right now the sport has evolved in such a way again georgia and oklahoma wins this lawsuit now the nca isn't controlling the televising of college football and it has just continued to mushroom and become more and more popular so the networks have become ever more important and in many ways espn and fox abc and fox disney that is and fox are controlling the money that's driving the train. Let me put it that way. And so, um, I think they are working very hard to come up with a solution that, uh, cuts off, so to speak, FSU at the pass in this attempt to try and bring in private equity. And, you know, uh, ESPN has the right to obliterate that, uh, ACC contract next year, I do believe. So, yeah, I think these lawsuits, you know, this I've never understood the, 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 you know, nobody really talking about the lawsuit. Like the ACC doesn't have to concern itself with a Florida lawsuit. And and, and, and FSU is sitting there saying we don't have to concern ourselves with the North Carolina lawsuit. OK. All right. We'll see how. But a lot of stuff is getting ready to happen real quick, I think. And um, a new structure is coming. My preference is we don't want a big two. And, uh, I don't want to see Oregon state and Washington state left out in the cold, you know, um, in this race to money. I want right. that college structure, um, to maintain this uniquely American kind of concept of how this sport has evolved. Right, And, uh, I just don't want it to go too corporate. It's way corporate already. And I think it's turning off some people on the way the rules are wild, wild West right now. I can tell you there's all kinds of debate within the University of Florida community of of, of just bitching and moaning about, wait, we got to pay through NIL pay for play for these players. And we've got a phenomenal amount of money within the university system. What the hell is going on? And a lot of people are just, they are getting sick and tired of this kind of yang that's being talked and, 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 you know, the game being taken over by mercenaries. People aren't interested in supporting any kind of mercenary. You need to have some kind of allegiance. You know, that's right, the way the right. college sport thing works. You can't just be about the dollars. If you're just about the dollars, they'll crash and burn the whole damn thing.
1: That, absolutely, and I, I think part of the, part of the issue here is like um, we've witnessed college football, especially, become on the same latitude of popularity as the most popular sports in this country. I'm talking NFL, NBA. We've absolutely seen college football get into that stratosphere of popularity. You and I have even discussed how uh, NFL crowds and energy and enthusiasm can't touch a college football crowd. There's something unique about a college no. football crowd that can't be put in a bottle. No. Um, and they've they've obviously latched onto this. They've seen how popular college football has become. And the money vultures have, they're obviously, you know, they're, they're kind of grinning and, and doing this whole thing. Um, So we're going to have to see what comes of that. Carrying on with this article, uh, it gets a a little more interesting as well. It says, in other words, college athletics have been a lot of fun through the years, but its old model stood no chance with this new court. Whether administrators, coaches, or fans wanted it, liked it, or approved it, the status quo was doomed. Athletes as employees, revenue sharing, schools issuing contracts, and perhaps a winnowing number of teams capable of competing, at least in football, was coming. The NCAA is not above the law, Kavanaugh wrote. However, rather than getting serious about serious questions, college sports leaders kept trying through the NCAA to fight a fight they were doomed to lose, focusing on establishing outdated guardrails and minor tweaks, fruitlessly lobbying Congress to save them and decreeing the transition as the wild, wild west, like their feelings even mattered. Then finally came Friday, more than two and a half years after Kavanaugh essentially warned that the NCAA needed to solve some pretty difficult policy and practical questions or else the Supreme Court would. The Big Ten and the SEC, the two behemoth conferences of college sports, formed a joint advisory group to address the significant challenges facing college athletics and the opportunities for betterment of the student-athlete experience. The group has no authority to enact change and is only a consulting body, but make no mistake, it can quickly morph into a new NCAA. After too much stalling and too many opinions, a smaller group of the biggest stakeholders are going to make some decisions because somebody must and the time is ticking. Pressures are mounting, SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey told Yahoo Sports' Ross Dellinger. What comes from this is unknown, but good luck to everyone else. Hopefully this won't turn into a super conference casting everyone else aside, which is basically what you just said, JB. Um, and it does come off to me like the SEC and the Big Ten are potentially trying to head off that private equity thing here. Like they're saying, look, if we can do something ourselves, maybe we can save off this private equity deal. So I don't know where I lie on that. We we ultimately have to see where, I mean, it could ultimately be a good thing that the two biggest conferences in football are stepping up and trying to get ahead of the private equity equity thing. And we could, we could end up looking back 20 years from now and saying, holy shit, that was a move that actually saved college football it was the big 10 and SEC doing this. Or we could look back in 20 years and be like, that was the move that expedited the destruction of college football. We just don't know yet. Um, but yeah, they are and, the two and- most powerful conferences and they are doing something about it. They seem not to be very happy about the private equity um, option that, that is starting to pop up.
2: Well, what they're really not happy about is, look, there's haves and have nots. And the way the uh, NCAA is set up, the way Title IX is set up, it, it, there are a lot of layers to what they're going to have to figure out moving forward. You know, uh, I, I, I'm in favor of Title IX going away. You know, I just think there's certain foolishness that's come out of that. But... um there's, there's there, What they're trying to do, Paul, I think, is dictate to some of the smaller conferences, some of the smaller schools, you need to follow our lead. And you better follow our lead. And if you don't follow our lead, okay, then we're going to move and uh, just go do our own damn thing. And this is what I was saying about Oregon State and Washington State and things like that, some of these smaller schools. People forget that in these conferences and college football fans are crazy fanatics and they forget, you know what, you you need a range of teams. It can't just be behemoths, because if it's all just behemoths, The overwhelming majority of those people are going to be upset because you can't win. You can't right. win if it's just you know, here. I heard people talking about kicking Vanderbilt out of the SEC. We will never kick <laughs> Vanderbilt out of the SEC you need some teams you know who are going to be there and uh, good sports and great competitors but they're not likely to whoop your ass all the time right you can't have teams that just whoop ass you just can't and so i think sankey is smart enough and i think he is driving the train i think the sec is driving the train and and should be but you got to have the mountain west you got to have some of these other conferences you got to have and so I'm, I'm hoping they can figure something out where there is a range of people playing, institutions playing, and uh, profiting from playing football along with the these players. But uh, I'm not interested in uh, the SEC and the Big Ten just being, we're taking our marbles and to hell with all of y'all. I, I, I don't I don't wanna see mm-hmm. that. I, I like and Americans like, you know, you know this. There's this underdog element. We like right. to see right. somebody overachieve and have a shot to whoop some ass. We like to see that. And uh, you know, football provides that. And you know, TCU was a recent example, even though they got the hell beat out of them in the championship game, it was a hell of a story for them. Right. A hell right. of a story. So
1: yeah. Yeah, I think um, when you look at the NBA um, and the NHL specifically, you've seen two leagues that have been able to kind of take that that parity issue. um, I'm sorry, I meant i meant baseball and the NHL take that parity issue uh, and have it to where any team almost has a chance to compete. Now, Um, you obviously have your stalwarts in each league in baseball and, and hockey, your teams that are always good. And you have your teams that are always kind of near the basement. But you also, every season, seem to have one or two teams come from that basement area that's, that are legitimate playoff threats or a threat to go deep into the playoffs. Sports need that. Might, you need that team that can come from the eight seed and make a run all the way to the Stanley Cup Finals or the World Series. Do you need it every year? No, you don't need it every year. But it's the balance of sports. You need that. You need to have that small team that can come out of nowhere and do it. That's one of the things that endears us as Americans to sports, I think, is seeing the guy that has absolutely no chance find a way. To, it's the David versus Goliath thing. It's in all of us. All of us want to go up against that task that there's no way we can handle it. And then somehow we end up slaying the giant at the end of the day. We're standing there tall. It just makes us all feel good. It makes you feel good as a human being. And it's kind of ingrained in us in America, to as Americans, to be that way. Um, so, you know, the, this, the next article you sent me, actually what I'm going to do first before we look at this next one, um, you'd also sent me a video on private equity. Is it the most exciting thing we've ever played on this show? No, but it's important to understand exactly what goes behind private equity and how it works to understand the danger that it represents to college sports as a whole. So I don't know if we're going to watch both parts of this video. We're at least going to watch the first part to kind of set the foundation and seeds for those out there who may be a little unaware of how private equity works. And I, I include myself as one of those people. I kind of had a vague idea until you sent me this video and then you watch the whole video and you're kind of like oh oh yeah that's not good don't do that to college football um so let's let's have a quick look at part one of this then we'll come right back around to discuss it jb
3: 642 us companies went bankrupt in 2023 the highest number since the great financial crisis but what's more surprising is that companies owned by private equity are 10 times more likely to go bankrupt The problem is one in every 14 workers in the US collect paychecks from companies owned by private equity. But what is private equity? How do they have more money than Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, and Tesla combined? And what are they doing to the US economy? Private equity firms or PE firms like Blackstone, the Carlyle Group, and Vista Equity Partners offer exclusive investment opportunities reserved for wealthy individuals and institutions. Basically, PE firms allow the wealthy to pool their cash together into this thing called a PE fund. By 2023, PE firms managed around $12 trillion in assets, more than the value of Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, and Tesla combined. But it's what they do with the money that's concerning. Generally, a PE fund has three main objectives. One, use the cash to buy companies. Two, three, collect a massive paycheck but it's the second objective that's changing the American economy for the worst. When it comes to what type of companies PE firms target, they fall into two categories, privately and publicly owned companies. Basically, privately owned companies are businesses that are not publicly traded in the stock market, like Ikea, Lego, and Trader Joe's, whereas publicly owned companies are Apple, Tesla, and Amazon. When a company is publicly traded, everyone from Warren Buffett to your 15-year-old nephew can find that company's stock. But there is a way to get stocks for free. Moomoo is offering you up to 15 free stocks. If you open and deposit $1,000, you get 15 free stocks valued up to $2,000 each. Despite the funny name, they are a registered broker-dealer with the SEC and is a member of SIPC, meaning you're covered up to $5,000, including $250,000 for cash. Link below. Public companies on the stock exchange have to comply with SEC regulations and be transparent with their financial performance every quarter. Their leadership team jumps on calls with their investors and explain what's going on with the business, why Netflix got rid of shared accounts, or how Apple can justify releasing the same iPhone model seven years in a row. But private companies don't need to do any of this. When a PE firm buys a public company, that company becomes private. They don't need to share any information, including information as basic as who actually owns the company, how it makes money, or whether it's even profitable. Private companies are effectively invisible to the public, media, and regulators. In 2000, private equity firms managed about 4% of total US company equity. By 2021, that number was closer to 20%. Meaning, about one-fifth of the market has been made effectively invisible to public investors, the media, and regulators. A PE firm's final objective is to collect a massive paycheck. In theory, how they do this sounds pretty good, but in practice, there are very sinister consequences. But before we talk about what those consequences are, we need to first understand how P firms became so powerful. In the 1970s, Houdé Industries was a household name. They were one of the largest auto parts supplier in the US. Everyone would go to the mechanic and ask for a new set of Houdés. But in just a decade, the name Houdé was completely wiped from the American economy because of three people. By 1978, Gerald Saltarelli, the CEO of Huday Industries, had grown the company to over 9,000 employees. They were debt-free and was flushed with cash, but he was ready to retire. He considered selling all the stock he owned in the company, but then he met three bankers, Jerome Kohlberg Jr., Henry Kravis, and George Roberts, otherwise known as KKR. At the time, they were nobodies, just a couple of people trying to make it big. But they made Saltarelli an offer he couldn't refuse. At the time, Huday Industries stock was trading around $14.50 per share, but KKR offered to buy them out at $40 per share, a nearly 3X premium. Naturally, Saltarelli agreed and walked away with a nice retirement package and $5 million. But how was any of this possible? How did a couple of nobodies afford a 3X premium? But more importantly, how did this deal become the catalyst that shaped the future of the American economy? In finance, they call KKR strategy a leveraged buyout or LBO. Basically, it's when a PE firm borrows a ton of money to buy a company out. Sounds innocent, but what if I told you that KKR and their PE fund put in less than 1% of the total deal value, meaning they spent less than $1 million to close a deal worth nearly $400 million. The rest of the $399 million borrowed from the banks. Imagine if you could buy a $500,000 house and you only needed to put $5,000 down. But the issue isn't that they borrowed the money. Sometimes you just need to take on debt to stabilize a business, which is fine, but it's how they took on the debt. Naturally, you think if KKR borrowed the remaining 99% of the money to buy the company, then KKR would be the one to owe the lenders back. But you'd be wrong. When it comes to a leveraged buyout, the debt is actually in the name of the company they just bought, Huday Industries. Meaning while KKR enjoyed all the benefits of owning Houdé Industries, making executive decisions and taking a huge chunk of any profits, it's actually Houdé Industries who's ultimately on the hook to pay back the loan with interest. It's this minute detail that would change the face of the American economy forever. The Houdé deal was historic and Wall Street started to pay attention. But when the 1981 recession hit, things became bad. Houdé was in deep trouble. Normally, when a business faces financial pains, they can borrow money against their equity to shore up their cash flow. But Huday Industries wasn't a normal case. Thanks to KKR, the entire value of the company was tied up in debt. Paying off this debt was the biggest expense on the balance sheet. KKR hoped they had a bit more time, but now Huday Industries was bleeding. As a fix, KKR sold 7 of the company's business divisions at a significant discount and eliminated over 2,000 jobs. Then KKR borrowed even more money and put the debt on Hude's tab. Not to overhaul Hude's business, like open new avenues such as online sales or update the infrastructure, but simply to pay the investors out. A year later, KKR sold off Hude's remaining divisions. Huday Industries, a pillar of American manufacturing that had previously enjoyed more than 50% market share, was completely wiped from the face of the earth. But KKR deemed it a success story. They walked away with millions in profit and rose to become the second largest PE firm in the United States. But it wasn't just KKR who saw this as a win. But first, as someone who grew up without much money and worked really hard to build my own business, one of my greatest joys is being able to financially help my parents and loved ones out. But one of my biggest fears is what if something were to happen to me? What would happen to those who relied on me? But something that brings me peace of mind knowing it can help protect my loved ones is life insurance. I found this company called Ethos that can make buying life insurance really easy. It only took me a few minutes to fill out some questions online, and I received my quote back in seconds. What gave me the confidence to check out Ethos is its excellent rating on Trustpilot and its a score from the Better Business Bureau. And I was surprised that the whole thing costs a lot less than I thought it would. According to Investopedia, each year that you wait to purchase life insurance, your premiums increase in cost by eight to 10%. And the sooner you buy life insurance, the more affordable it's likely to be. You can get your own personalized free quote today in minutes by clicking my link below. Thanks to Ethos for sponsoring this.
1: So you folks saw what happened there, right? Huday was kind of went into private equity. And when Huday did so, they were doing very, very well as a company. And then a couple of years down the road, Huday was in the toilet because of the inclusion of private equity. Did you guys see the way that worked? Thoughts, JB? Well,
2: it's an insider game. And this is the thing, right? This is the thing we're talking about across the board with the corporatist industrial complex. They have these legalized insider games that they play almost like magic. And you saw the way they did the little loop-de-loop there, right? right? You come in, you got a profitable company. These people come in and talk about, you know, we're going to better things. We're going to increase the profits through these investors, And then, okay, they get their money. They scooped, but there's been debt. And, you know, of course, the fiat system is all based off of debt. This is another aspect of that game. And you're sitting there with this formerly profitable company that is screwed. People maybe, you know, you go into this whole mergers and acquisitions game crap. and Then people lose their jobs and you know their livelihood, and this is this was my concern about you know what whatever FSU was talking about. I mean, do you really know? Did they? Did I have confidence that they really understood what they were getting into potentially?
4: Right.
1: And
2: did Florida taxpayers know? You know, so um, I'll hazard
1: a again, guess. They I'll hazard a guess they were banking on the fact that Florida taxpayers did not know what they were getting into. At least the majority, anyway. And and, and look, it may be unfair
2: uh, to them. They may have a beautiful plan that does protect them uh, and Florida taxpayers. I just don't know. And again, I'm hoping that it's all uh, irrelevant because of what looks to be coming uh, in the next year or two. Because again, ESPN has that option. And if they drop that ACC coverage uh, contract next year, then everybody's free, theoretically speaking, right? To uh, move forward as the market dictates or whatever, right? So we'll see.
1: And there's a, there's even um, kind of a, I guess a connection or a correlation uh, within within Major League Baseball this season too, and that is the um, the defending World Series champion, the Texas Rangers. They're reworking their TV deal right now, and they still haven't finalized that deal. They've got a starting pitcher from that team, Jordan Montgomery, who is currently an unrestricted free agent who they'd very much like to bring back, but they can't yet because they don't know how much money yet they're going to have to spend on people because the TV deal is not finalized. My point is, these people in control of these TV deals and things like that, they don't give a shit about the sports. If they did, They'd had the Texas Rangers TV deal seamed up sometime in December so the sports franchise could go about their sports business in the upcoming season of defending their World Series championship. Instead, the TV company doesn't give a shit. They've got this money hanging out there. Texas has no idea how much money they can spend on players. We're a month and a half away from the start of Major League Baseball season. And Texas, the defending freaking World Series champions are kind of being hung out to dry a little bit. On their TV deal, because these companies don't care about the teams, the athletes, or the sports. They only care about the dollar. Um, so it's kind of a little bit in the same ballpark of what we could potentially see down the road with college sports a little bit. And uh, the next the next article, I'm not going to go over the whole thing, but we'll glaze over it, JB. This is another one that you had sent me uh, pertaining to the same thing. College football kings are aligning in an effort to save the sport's future path. Amid one of the most pivotal times in college athletics, the SEC and Big Ten, the two wealthiest conferences in America, are creating a joint advisory group of university presidents, chancellors, and athletic directors to address the turmoil enveloping the industry. The league's two commissioners told Yahoo Sports in an exclusive interview this week, and this interview was from last week, my friends, or the week before, rather. This nameless joint effort, a historic cooperative movement between the country's most powerful leagues, is an initial step in their intent to steer the future of college college athletics, The latest example of authority shifting from the NCAA's age-old national governance model to its more prominent conferences. Um, JB, in in alignment with Q-Drops, that right there kind of reeks to me of you're you're witnessing the old guard kind of go away. Um, Interesting aspect there as it relates to me and you saying that sports are, are being cleaned up and brought into alignment as well. We'll have to see how this plays out, but just kind of interesting that that's the way they worded that. Uh, the Joint Advisory Board is tasked with tackling the most pressing challenges before the industry and what Big Ten and SEC commissioners describe as an urgent mission to find solutions for issues such as ongoing antitrust lawsuits, most notably the multi-billion dollar house case, disagreements over the NCAA's new governance proposal, Project DI, and the unsettled landscape of athlete transfer movement, tampering charges, and name, image, and likeness inducements. Big Ten Commissioner, Commissioner Tony Petiti calls the joint move a meaningful step in an effort to fix things. SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey described it as a search for a common-sense solution that he hopes will lead to a much brighter horizon. The commissioners both strongly rebuke any notion that the creation of this advisory board is a move toward a breakaway from the college sports governing body. The Big Ten and SEC remain prominent members of the NCAA, both in governance and national competition, they say. The joint board does not hold unilateral authority, and they will have no motivation to simply declare anything, Sankey said. So, that's all good and well, and you may not have the motivation uh, to declare anything or say anything looks like JB's having internet issues at the moment, um, but it looks like they have no motivation to simply or declare anything, but it's the Big Ten and the SEC. They're all powerful and all knowing. So, of course, um, don't know. I don't, I don't know how much I buy that. Or I don't know how much they'll they'll stick to not wanting to influence uh, use their power or or anything to influence. Um, so let's go ahead and take a look at a private equity video concerning college sports specifically found this one on YouTube last night. And these gentlemen are discussing uh, this exact issue within college sports. Let's have a look.
5: Fact that, you know, you have school leaders that, that maybe don't want to sever even more historic rivalries or they haven't figured out a, a great solution for their other sports packages. It, it's, it's also, there's, it's not clear who's going to finance that because staying in the NCAA Right now, even with all of the losses and all of the frustration with Indianapolis, still presents a very compelling legal shield. And you know, we we heard this from from multiple you know P five ads when there were a bunch of lead one meetings last year about hey, really even pushing FBS to move uh, completely outside the auspices of of, of you know the, the current governance structure, and move to something totally different. Then they realized, oh my gosh, now we're going to be liable for our own insurance. We're going to be liable for, for more direct lawsuits. And that's going to increase our operating costs by 10 million plus a year. Maybe it's better to stick the rest of the NCAA uh, and stick the rest of the NCAA with that. Make Long Beach help pay for those things. So eventually the math is going to work out the other way. And Alabama and Ohio state and Texas and Michigan are going to go do something else, but I don't think that's tomorrow. And I don't think it's next month.
6: So, uh, when you look at where we are, the umbrella of college athletics—the presidents, the ads, the coaches, the players, the student athletes—now you have NIL and agents and all this other stuff. Is it sustainable where we are right now?
5: No, I, I, I think on, on a lot of different levels, and I actually have some like real reporting on the NIL component about that this week. You know, tracking hard and fast numbers of. Uh, what collectives are reporting to the IRS, because since many of them are, are registered as 501c3s for some, for some reason. And, and even now, what we constantly hear from collective managers is that there's donor fatigue and that, you know, entities are trying to figure out how to shift their fundraising burden from eight rich guys to 8,000 people or, or 10,000 people paying 20 bucks. Um, and uh, you're already seeing people rebel against that, right? Because it's not like the season tickets to Baylor are cheap. you are going to go to a football game and pay $4 for a bottle of water and $5 for a hot dog and 40 bucks to park. Uh, and all these other, and then whatever you got to donate for your personal license. And then at the end of the day, be told, listen, if you don't personally give us 500 bucks, um, you know, we're, we're, gonna, we're going to, we're going to lose to Sam Houston state. People, people are going to resent that. It's, it's it, you know, they don't want your athletics communication sounding like it's coming from a political pack, you know, uh, and, and that kind of relentless emotional manipulation. You also have that world in the face of multiple, massive lawsuits, lawsuits that could—I'm not, I'm not exaggerating for a goof—but like literally bankrupt the NCAA mm-hmm. um, to, to, to say nothing of forcing enormous changes from everybody else. So, like, if, if there's one thing. That I think virtually every stakeholder would agree on what we're doing now doesn't make sense and we can't keep doing it forever. There's going to have to be a radical change one way or another. Um, uh, you know, Congress is part of that equation. S- private equity could be a part of that conversation. I'm not saying that's a good thing, just saying that's a thing that's happening. A lot of other academics, what we have in, tw- in 2026, 2027 is not going to look like what we have now.
7: Matt, uh, you just mentioned private equity there. There was a bit of a like, kind of uh, – it was funny. I saw a lot of people commenting on Twitter, but uh, when the story was tweeted out about like could private equity kind of change college sports, um, you know, all those aren't c- created equal. You can ask Silicon Valley. Like for every Google, there's a million people that were the exact opposite of Google. Uh, to, for people who are kind of confused at how private equity would work – Um, the pros and cons of adding it to, to the, to the landscape of college sports.
5: Yeah. So there's a variety of the, of institutional investors that could potentially step in and offer a massive amount of liquidity to college athletics. If you're, you know, to use, to use a school like Baylor or Texas tech here, as an example, you might be able to get some outside investor who could pump in a hundred million plus, which would allow you to make payroll, and allow you to kind of transition to a more professionalized model without necessarily having to lay a gajillion people off, uh, or you know, liquidate your stadium or some of these other things. Um, they could do that at a, at a scale that a bank can't do, or, or maybe some other investors can't do. But these kind of companies don't come in and drop 100, 400, 600 million dollars out of the goodness of their hearts. And unlike the bank, right? When I, when I sign my mortgage with Chase Bank, they understand that they're not going to get their, all of their money probably for 30 years. And, and they're, they have to be content making a relatively modest profit <clears throat> over a period of time. And when somebody like BlackRock or the Saudi investment fund, um, or some gigantic institutional investor comes in, they're not holding an asset for 60 years hoping to make 6% they want it to, to 10x or 20x or 50x and get out. Um, and what that happens is if it's a Google or uh, a, a, a unicorn or some companies, it blows up and everybody gets rich. But what can also happen is you know, the private equity comes in and skeletalizes the model because they recognize that the only way for them to get their money back on their investment is to strip things for parts, and then everything gets much worse. Um, the, uh, the obvious example in our world is the newspaper industry which has been obliterated by vulture private equity firms over the last 10 years. We've seen this happen in the residential housing market. We've seen this happen in some other places. And so one of the concerns we talked about this with Florida state, one of the concerns might be is, you know, one of these entities comes in here and they look at the balance sheet and look at how we're doing. And they ask, what the hell are we doing baseball for? Baseball doesn't make us enough money. It's an inefficient distribution of capital. Let's get rid of baseball. What the hell are we doing student sections for? What, the, what are we doing general admission for? We should go be building more luxury boxes. We should be building smaller, more bespoke football experiences. Let's optimize and make everything more efficient. And that might make some people more money, but the real risk is, does that strip away even more about what makes college athletics unique and special and fun?
1: Yes. It does. And he's not wrong at all because it's exactly what some of these private. Do you think some big shot at BlackRock's going to give a shit about some kid's dream of playing college baseball if college baseball is not making that school or that private equity firm any money? No, he doesn't. And that is the inherent danger um, with bringing private equity into the fold with college sports. I thought what the guy said there was was fantastic, came across that last night on YouTube.
2: Yeah. and, And the thing is, It was a good point talking about a 30 year or 60 year period or something like that. You know, the way things are now, especially for state institutions, you know, you can do these bonds and you have a period of it where you can spread that repayment out and it allows you to float and sustain your operation. But with private equity, there's probably going to be like a seven year period up to maybe a 10 year period. They got to get their money. Period. And if they don't get their money, I mean, they loaned you this money. Uh, you've made use of the money. And they've then got a right to get their money back. And, you know, you're going to have to do X, Y, and Z so that that money can be reobtained. It's just a different world. And, and, and you know, I'm just not sure people want to go down that, that road. But um, if you're talking about a league, right? I think we are going to move towards something of a national type of uh, a nationalized type of operation for college sports that still tries to hang on to a little bit of the uniquely American spirit where some of this money is parceled out. Right. And uh, there are going to have to be some haircuts, right? Because it's crazy the way the money is, uh, And, you know, we all know things are just totally out of whack. You're building these palaces at some of these schools for football. Right. And then you've got all these other sports. Well, football drives the train because football makes the money. So what they have to figure out is some type of enterprise that, you know, you've got a primary sport, football, that primarily pays the bills. um, But you have. Revenue aspects that haven't been tapped, utilized, that Americans can't accept. That's what the name, image, and likeness was supposed to be. You know what I mean? If they had done it properly, it would have not kicked in until that athlete got on campus. And that athlete started insinuating himself or herself into the university environment. And then you could grow. The way these kids talk these days your brand right, but right. now you're paying money on potential and it's pay for play and it's ruthless and they're paying crazy money to uh, athletes who may never pan out because they're afraid of the competition and you know schools like fsu went all in on all of this stuff started paying money and got results and so everybody has to follow that lead now so it's right. just
1: crazy
2: The way everything is upside down and there has to be some order. And Paul, I talked to you before about baseball and Kurt flood and free agency and that slippery slope where baseball has moved from the clear number one sport in this country to something less than that. I mean, I think college football is like the number two sport in this country right now. And so it's just, you have to be really careful because it ultimately comes down to the paying public. And the paying public gets sick of you.
1: Then, and, and look, that's, we've seen, and that's been the last 20 years that has happened, by the way, that college football has ascended that ladder of most popular sports in America. It's always been popular, but I'd say up until the late 90s, early 2000s, you could comfortably say it was the NFL, the NBA, the NBA and baseball kind of on equal footing, followed by hockey and then motorsports. But I think now, um, it's, it's not even really an objective opinion. It's the NFL, college football. And then college football has absolutely surpassed the NBA and Major League Baseball and hockey as, as a most popular and favorite sport in this country. Part of that was because of the, the diversity and parity they created. Part of that was because of the playoff system and a finite way to decide who your champion is. And part of that is this stuff we've been sitting here discussing today, JB. I can see it becoming the kind of thing where – uh, you said it, it. it's heading toward becoming nationalized where you're almost going to have like, let's say, for lack of a better phrase, an American conference and a national conference in the NCAA. Maybe we'll see these old conferences, you know, become divisions. So you'd have like the SEC division and the ACC division and things like that. But it's going to happen. I think college football is becoming too popular, too big and too branded for them not to eventually go this way. I think that's the way it's shaken out and. We have to see how this goes, man. Certainly an interesting conversation to head into the next college sports season, especially college football. And it does certainly seem like what you said, and this is ramping up quick. It's going to, these things are going to happen quick within college football. So we're going to have to see what happens, man. Um, You know, that's going to, real quick, I want to take a moment. I missed this on Monday and I don't want to miss it again today. We had a, a really generous boost over on the Badlands boost from JC Bird said, JB, I just had a thought of you this morning, brother. Imagine that on Super Bowl Sunday. You and Abs have a blessed day today and every day. So our friend uh in, bird. <laughs> I, meant, I meant to read that on Monday, man. And it, it to be honest with you, I'm just gonna be really honest. We don't get rants or boosts over on this show, so it slips my mind to check that shit. <laughs> so thank you so very, very much for your support and your love, my friend. We we appreciate it. Um, and also remind you folks, please go down there and smash that like button for us. And please remember to support our advertising partners because without them, there is no us. So we're gonna take a quick moment. To hear from them. When we come back, we're going to dive into some NBA news and a fascinating article on Victor Wembignana. So hang with us, friends. We will be right back. Folks, unless you haven't noticed, Trump is mentioning the CBDC in recent speeches. And up until now, the digital dollar or the CBDC has been nothing but a headline. But right now, things are developing at a rapid pace. It started with a sweeping executive order from the Biden administration, and now central banks are even hiring for their development. Here's the thing. A digital dollar can be used to track your purchases, control what you buy, and even seize or freeze your assets. That's why it's critical you protect your money with precious metals like gold and silver. We've partnered with the top-rated precious metals company, Goldco, because they're a great company with an amazing reputation. And right now, they're giving up to $10,000 in free silver, friends, while supplies last. Plus, all qualified callers this week will receive a free Ronald Reagan silver coin. Don't wait until all of your money is under Biden's control. Go to badlandsgold.com to learn how you can get started today. One more time, friends, that's badlandsgold.com. Badlanders, it's time to rebel against the system. The powers that be don't want us healthy, period. They thrive on us being sick, overweight, and dependent. They've been manipulating our food, infusing it with chemicals that cripple our metabolism, making it almost impossible for us to burn fat and stay healthy. Enter the Patriot Trainer. With over 15 years of experience as a personal trainer and health sciences researcher, Dan Lyons created a course that's a weapon against the deceit of the elites. You'll learn the science behind these metabolism-destroying chemicals, how to avoid them, detoxify your body, and ultimately repair your metabolism. This Nutrition for Freedom course is a fortress of knowledge for those who've been labeled as science deniers. This course equips you with real, untainted science, preparing you for any debate about nutrition and weight loss. Take control and ignite the torch of health and independence. Visit badlandsmedia.tv trainer and enter promo code BADLANDS for 20% off the Nutrition for Freedom course from the Patriot Trainer. One more time, friends, that's badlandsmedia.tv trainer, promo code BADLANDS. Welcome back, my friends. And before we dive into a fascinating Victor Remignana article, we're going to take a quick look at the NBA standings at this point, my friends, as it's definitely reaching that point of the season where we should be paying attention. And out in the Eastern Conference, we have the Boston Celtics sitting atop at 43-12. Six games behind them in the number two slot are the Cleveland Cavaliers at 36-17, and that third slot currently being taken up by the Milwaukee Bucks at 35-21, and eight and a half games back. JB, the Bucks have lost two in a row and they are three and seven in their last 10. That is not not the proper trend they would like to be seeing at this point. Um, kind of leads you to believe maybe some of the problems with that roster went beyond the Higgins as their coach. Uh, the New York Knicks sitting in the fourth spot, 33 and 22. The fifth slot belongs to the Philadelphia 76ers for the moment at 32 and 22. But again, Joel Embiid basically, they haven't said he's done for the regular season, but they've basically said he's done for the regular season with that knee issue um indiana pacers sitting number six at 31 and 25 they are 12 and a half games behind five and five in their last 10 the miami heat sitting in that seven spot at 30 and 25 orlando magic in the eighth spot also 30 and 25 in the nine spot you've got the chicago bulls at 26 and 29 and in the 10 spot you have the atlanta hawks at 24 and 31 just sitting outside the playoffs are the brooklyn nets at 21 and 33 and the toronto raptors at 19 and 36 the hornets at thirteen and forty-one, the Hornets have actually been playing way better basketball over the last few weeks. The um, reason for optimism there, man. And I was telling you before the show came on that Brandon Miller is straight legit. We've got a got a package coming up here in yawn I might have to put one together on Miller because I, I think because of the market he plays in, JB, he's not been getting a lot of attention. But um, I'm just here to tell you that kid's one hundred percent legit. It's it's it might be my favorite Hornets draft pick of the last decade, uh, aside from Lamelo. You kind of know I'm a Lamelo ball homer when he's not injured. Um, Western Conference: Minnesota Timberwolves continue to sit up top out there, but they're getting some heat from the Thunder now. Timberwolves sitting at 39 and 16. The Thunder are right behind them at 37 and 17, a game and a half back. And uh, Gildas Alexander is starting to, to get some serious recognition for a potential MVP award. His he is having an absolute lights out season this year. The guy has cemented himself as a, a top tier superstar in the NBA at this point. The LA Clippers continue to make me and JB eat crow day after day as they sit at 36 and 17. They are 7-3 and in their last 10. JB, I remember when we really started tracking them, they were like 7 or 8 in the Western Conference and kind of looked like they were stumbling. Now, to be fair, you and I are no fans of Harden. You and I kind of dumped on the Clippers a little bit, but that roster on paper is as good as any roster in the NBA, and you see them getting their shit together and playing as a team. They were a legitimate threat out there in the West, and... You and I did say at that time, despite our James Harden dislike that, look, if this team gets it together and figures out how to play together, they're going to find themselves near the top of those Western conference standings by the end of the season. And look, they've crept up into that third spot. I see no reason they can't uh, eventually creep themselves all the way up, man. They've been playing some really, really, really good basketball lately. Um, And they're playing as a team. That's the thing. Like Mr. I am the system is actually playing within a team system. It's kind of, Kind of crazy to see. Uh, The Denver Nuggets defending champions sit at 36 and 19. They're 5 and 5 in their last 10. They've lost three in a row. Denver hitting a little bit of a skid. The Phoenix Suns seem to be waking up a little bit 33 and 22. They've won two in a row. They're 7 and 3 in their last 10. As are the New Orleans Pelicans, also 7 and 3 in their last 10. The Dallas Mavericks, 7 and 3 in their last 10 as well. They are 32 and 23 in the seventh spot. The Sacramento Kings are 31 and 23 in the eighth spot. The Lakers, 30 and 26 in that ninth slot. And the Golden State Warriors. 27 and 26 in that 10 spot. Speaking of the Lakers and Warriors, JB, um, it appear apparently, according to rumors and reports, the golden state warriors made a pitch for LeBron at the trade deadline. Um, I haven't seen or heard anything about what may have been offered. Obviously the Lakers didn't go for it. Um, Well, maybe LeBron didn't go for it. Ultimately he would have say in in where he's going, um, which raises an interesting question. Do you think he finishes his career with the Lakers or do you think he's going to wind up somewhere else before his, his playing days are done JB?
2: Uh, I think it may determine it may be determined by what's out there in terms of where he might be able to land. I think he might be open to that. I mean, look, I don't think his son is going to be NBA material, you know, and I'm hoping he's not hung up on that. You know what I mean? I mean, I can understand your son and family things will blind you, but I, everything I see, everything I hear, okay, he's, he, he's not going to be NBA material, let it go. And so if that means a real opportunity opens up where he can be a contributor somewhere for a team that's competing for a championship, you know, um, that might be interesting. That might be very interesting. Um, I was down in South Florida for the Super Bowl and talking to a guy, and he thought it was more impressive for LeBron to win uh, multiple titles in different places uh, rather than less impressive. But uh, I think that's a minority point of view. But um, Los Angeles, I don't know, man. I don't know. It just hasn't worked out, I'm sure, the way he hoped. Right. Uh, But he's still balling.
1: Yeah, he's – he's still playing at a very, very, very high level and still producing. Um, I do not think the Los Angeles experiment has went exactly the way he hoped that it would. Um, Obviously they do have a title there with him, but it was, it, it was that COVID title, right? Like the bubble title. And um, you know, at, at the time of the COVID season, I was um, in fairly frequent communication with a former NHL player that had won a Stanley cup. And I mean, he told me, as it pertained to the NHL, they were calling it like players behind the scenes were calling it the COVID cup that year. Like they had, they didn't give a shit. They didn't care. They went out there and played cause they had to, they were contractually obligated to. But if you think these players enjoyed playing in empty ass arenas, no, nah. nah, dog. Like you, they're, they're a- absolutely a love for the game is a big part of it. Part of that love for the game is experiencing the crowd reaction and interactions with the crowd. So if you think these, <sighs> these athletes, had any kind of fun or took it seriously when they were made to play in these bubbles. Uh, no. So I, I think LeBron would ultimately love to win a championship in LA full gore, you know, full season, right. no bubble playoff right. crowd and everything. And I don't know that he's going to get that opportunity in LA with the time he has left JB. I'm not seeing it in their roster. I'm not seeing it in future plans. I'm not seeing it with their salary cap issues. I'm just not seeing it. I'm not seeing the construction of a roster that can get him anywhere near that. Not, not with the way Minnesota's playing the season, not with Denver out there, not with Oklahoma city rising. Like it's, it's just too tall an order out there for them. I think now I do have, before we move on to the Wemby thing, I do have one question. How do you think it would have worked though? Had, had, had the trade happened, you got LeBron and Curry on the same team. How would that ever work? Do you think it would work or do you think it would be yeah a little too much from, from two polarizing players?
2: Well, here's the thing. I would have been intrigued to see it unlike Durant going to Golden State because, you know, Golden State's not riding high. When Durant went there, they were the all-everything team. They're not right. that now, you know. But uh, I also, I just... Would have been intrigued to see because I have so much uh, respect for LeBron's basketball sense that uh, he would have recognized, you know, Steph and who Steph is and the ball and all like that. And he'd have to play differently. And uh, the point the point I made to people uh, when he came to Florida, you know, he's playing down in Miami and they were talking about Wade County. And I was like, man, shut up with that stuff. Any damn team LeBron is on, it's LeBron's team. Right. Rush. But that's not the case now. You know, if he had gone to Golden State, that's Curry's I team. It's <laughs> Steph's team. And um and that would not have changed. You know, he just yeah. would have to have accepted a certain position. Could he do that? I think he could. But I think,
1: uh, he, I think he could I too. I right? actually I have a basis for that. We watched uh, the other night, we watched a documentary on the redeem team, you know, the 2008 U S Olympic team. Um, and the way that LeBron James, now look, he was a lot younger then, right. But the way that he stepped aside and he still did his thing with that team, but he let that be Kobe Bryant's team tells me that he, he could, he could have set it aside and let that continue to be Curry's team in golden state. Um, yeah, that documentary, man, if you haven't seen that yet, it's really, really fascinating. For one, you hear Coach K drop a few F-bombs, which I, I didn't know the man was capable of. Um, and for two, the respect you see from some of these all-time NBA greats as it pertains to Kobe Bryant blew my mind. Like, Kobe was already one of my favorite NBA players ever. This documentary just vaulted, vaulted him up that list. Kobe really didn't give a shit. He didn't buy in... To the press nonsense he didn't buy into all that um lebron james said in this documentary he, he said my first my first experience with kobe bryant was um you know he walks into the building and walks into the locker room he doesn't say shit. he's just ice cold and just straight got that that stare of, of glass that kobe had and LeBron was like, my first opinion was like, oh, this nigga is the real deal. Like, you don't cross this dude. You don't talk back to him. You don't disrespect him. You don't go against him at all. Like, he he said from the moment that Kobe walked into that locker room, his professionalism and his I – I don't even know how to word it. Like, LeBron was kind of – like, his grace, the way that he carries himself preceded him into that locker room. And they said the first day of team practices, you know, before Kobe had shown up, They were all like kind of rolling around, waking up 7.30, 8 in the morning, getting to the gym around 9. The first day Kobe's on the team, Carmelo Carmelo Anthony's like, you know, I'm down in the lobby of the hotel. We've been up playing games all night. It's like 4 o'clock in the morning, and I see Kobe go walking out with his damn gym bag, and here's Kobe at 4 in the morning going out the hotel to hit the gym by 5, doing his own workout from 5 to 7 in the morning before official team workouts. And Carmelo Anthony said, "Let me tell you what. Within a week, everybody on the team was doing that, and it was because Kobe did it first. He didn't ask anybody to. He didn't say you have to do this. That was the respect those dudes held for Kobe Bryant. Was that Kobe's doing this? Well, we can't. <laughs> we can't let Kobe do it alone. Hell no. We got to go do it too. Um, and so I think from that standpoint, you see, if you watch the documentary, you see how LeBron took a backseat to Kobe in in that situation." Um, I think I think it could work if, if LeBron were to ever try to team up with Curry. I think that LeBron has only gotten wiser on the floor in the years since then, man. I really do. And it's no secret, I can't stand the man. But as far as the player, um he's he's one of the three best ever to me. Him, him, MJ, and Kobe are the three best ever to me. Yeah. Um well,
2: you know, Kobe manifested that mamba mentality you know what I mean you lead by example damn your mouth lead by example and uh, that's a I don't want to say a lost art it's not as well established as it used to be you know a lot of stuff these days is mouthy 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 oh man I'm having a camera issue now (laughs) oh goodness let me
1: Oh my goodness, the, the technical gremlins are are real uh, for JB today, um, as as they do seem to be happening fairly frequently at points. And you know what, since we started this show, the technical gremlins have been an issue for us. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and, you know what, here's what we're going to do, friends. I'm going to play this, uh, or start reading this article, and we'll get to a video here in just a second. So this is an article on Victor uh <laughs> Unbelievable first half highlights. He's gotten some press, but me and JB were we're kind of talking about how we don't think he's uh, he's he's necessarily gotten the, the the press and the weight that he should because the the, the Spurs are terrible this year, and so uh, naturally n- national outlets aren't going to pay a ton of attention to him. They have paid attention to Yann, and he's having a great rookie season. So let's uh, let's read on this for just a second here, my friends. There are a few good players in the NBA who know, or there are a few players in the NBA who know more about Victor Wembanyama than Rudy Gobert does. The two unusually tall Frenchmen have known each other for years, with 31-year-old Gobert having imparted wisdom to 20-year-old Wembanyama as he made his journey to the NBA. A good portion of NBA fans got their first look more than three years ago at Wembanyama, then 16 years old and playing the Nanteri 92 in France when he played a game of two on two against Gobert and former NBA center Vincent Poirier in an empty gym. Already seven foot three, then, Wembinyama impressed a viral audience with a dizzying array of step-back jumpers and off-the-ball moves against three-time Defensive Player of the Year. The two Frenchmen met as NBA players for the first time when Weminyama's San Antonio Spurs met Gobert's Minnesota Timberwolves on November 10th with Wembinyama putting up 29 points on 12 of 21 shooting to go along with nine boards and four blocks. Gobert heaped praise on the rookie, saying he was occupying minds and altering shots at an uncommonly early age. Gobert's report was succinct and tantalizing. The young star, he said, would be a real problem really soon for everyone across the league. It took less than four months. And while Wemenyama's evolution is far from complete, Gobert is looking more prophetic by the day. The rookie has already produced more than a season's worth of highlights that have left his teammates and his opponents in awe. It's so hard to imagine what it's going to be if he keeps, and he will, up after a couple years of working, Gobert said. I can't even imagine how he's going to evolve. Uh, which it is, if you've watched wembignana play, uh, it's not too far outside of the realm of possibility. So let's take a look at the first video that was in this uh, article. It's this video up here at the top. And it's a look at some of his most memorizing moments from the first half of the season.
6: Victor Wembignana
8: is not only the greatest draft prospect in the history of the NBA, he may be the greatest prospect in the history of team sports. He is as
1: big as as young and as skilled as anybody we've
5: ever seen in the modern era in the NBA. I lately, like this unicorn thing. Everybody's been a unicorn over the last few
1: years. Was, you
9: know, like, like, oh, has been like, hey, Oh, whammy! Nice touch as he rolls it off the eye. Yeah, he's like the 2K creative
2: player. <laughs> Every point guard that wants to be seven foot, Chico type vibe. Yeah.
10: This kid does stuff you've never seen anybody do.
4: Victor
7: to the bucket. Oh! He's got skill, and he's got heart. Oh my goodness!
9: He's a seven-four version of Kevin Durant. He could do it all.
6: He's a special talent, man. Oh!
11: That type of talent and skill—it just puts a smile on your face. I feel like I'm watching a different sport. Like I'm just watching somebody who plays at a different level on a different plane of existence. He is in the Matrix. He's a monster.
4: Oh, it's knocked away by Wembenyama. Knocked away by Yama! Oh!
8: ain't no way. No. Unicorn,
6: <laughs>
4: you know, stop it! Stop this!
1: What an incredible player this kid is. So, moving on in this article, um, it goes on to another clip called October 20th at the Golden State Warriors. 90 seconds of what the hell was that? Let's go ahead and take a look at 90 seconds of Wembenyama doing some just crazy Wembenyama things.
7: Bro, oh, they finally dipped down and get Wembenyama, but have Vassell and have Keldon Johnson. They are rebuilding right in front of our eyes. Yeah, I think it's a mentality shift. Last year, as you see Wimbinyama, eight foot wingspan. He blocked that three that, you know, this is, we got to watch Wembegiana's block. But the turnovers, what's that from a player's mindset of the coach saying, hey, we can't turn it over in the first five minutes of the game? And Warriors are just trying to attack all these switches. Juan, you were really good at switching. Just talk about the importance of being that versatile as Wembegiana. His versatility on both ends of the floor is showing out right now. You can switch everything. Yeah. It's it's hard to score on. You keep, you keep, there's like a buffer between the balls. Wow. Come on, man. So, Wemenyana is at two jumpers. He's making so much better. I think his time playing in summer block. He blocked Clay Thompson. He, he just blocked his second three of the night. And then with his hammer, though, is he just toying with people right now? He probably needs to work out with Steph. Steph is in the best shape ever <laughs> of anyone in the league. But, Wemenyana right now. You're seeing what all the hype is about. He is a real. Along with Sarge, two of the free agent acquisitions. We're going to talk to Mike Dunleavy in the second quarter about the Warrior offseason building the team. has got three blocks already. Andrew Wiggins through everything he could at out Couldn't shake him. And then he lasers the three. Clay was guarding Chris Paul, and they've done it obviously so many times in so many different iterations. And Chris was dribbling the ball. He said, "Not anymore, Clay." <laughs> and the regular season, we're, we're brothers. We're teaming. Not anymore. No more.
1: And we see 90 seconds of Victor Wembanyama was going completely ham there. So after a shaky summer league debut summer in the league, wondered how long it would take the 2023 number one pick to adapt to the NBA game. Any lingering concerns were answered resoundingly in the Spurs preseason finale against the Warriors in one 90 second span in the first quarter, which you just saw Wembanyama made a pull-up jumper FR crossover and a pump fake that got Andrew Wiggins fully airborne. Drove baseline on Clay Thompson, got fouled, and made the shot from a nearly impossible angle before converting the free throw. Blocked a Thompson three-point attempt from the top of the key, then hesitated before slamming it home on the other end as Thompson flew by. Blocked a Wiggins drive in the lane, and on the next possession, swished home a 28-foot three-pointer. When Wembenyama and the Spurs traveled back to San Francisco for an in-season tournament game, Steph Curry spoke about how much the rookie changes the game. Quote, you can't do the same thing you normally do. He blocked my shot on a floater, and I don't even think he jumped. He just went like that, Curry said, gesturing with his arm and knocked it off the backboard. It still catches you by surprise, the stuff that he does because out of his because of his stature. October 27th versus the Houston Rockets, not one, but two game-saving blocks. The Spurs' first win of the season happened in part because of a pair of blocks on the same play with different hands. Let's go ahead and have a look at that now, my friends. Welcome back, JBSC. You've you've sorted your technical issues. For the time being over there, I was just uh, getting into the Wemben stuff, man. We went over a first video that showed kind of uh, his highlights to this point in the season. And the, the next one we just went over was 90 seconds of pure madness by Wemben Yama in the preseason. And now we're just about to take a look at this one that I was describing, uh, which is two blocks with opposing hands in a span of just a couple seconds. Let's have a look at this one.
4: And I... Rockets
6: advantage.
7: Smith. Oh! ball Johnson
4: on the drive and he's fouled
1: wow. wow Brooks, it, Brooks is like what the practice fuck practice was that <laughs> on the
4: defensive
7: end from Victor back to back blocks Javari Smith tried to challenge him
1: get that shit out of here <laughs> <laughs> I to mean, try to sneak it by him again. Get that <laughs> shit out of here too. But he <laughs> <was at> <laughs> real, man. He was at 12 feet. Hey, look, what we're seeing from Yama right now is basically raw talent and pure skill. Like you haven't, you're seeing him without any kind of like you're seeing the, the edge without any kind of like finesse put on it mm-hmm. yet. Like this, this is just this should scare the shit out of everybody else on the yeah. right <laughs> <laughs> Uh with the Spurs trailing by three minute three with two minutes to go, Rockets forward Jabari Smith Jr. caught a pass from Jalen Green and was driving for a dunk. Then he met a waiting Webin Yama, who swatted his dunk away with his right hand and stumbled backwards out of bounds. Smith gathered the rebound and as he tried to go back up for a reverse putback layup, Webin Yama got back in bounds and blocked that attempt with his left hand. He's going to make some amazing plays at least once a game. Spurs guard Devin Vassell said, and I think today he probably had three or four. The Spurs went on to win the game, 126-122 in overtime with Wembenyama giving the Spurs the lead for good with a jumper over Dylan Brooks. Now move ahead to January 2nd at the Memphis Grizzlies, the signature one-legged three. It's hard to imagine anyone who had tur- just turned 20 and hadn't even played 50 games the NBA having a signature move, but Wembenyama isn't just anyone. A seven-foot-four center shooting any type of a three-pointer is something of an anomaly. But Wembenyama has, since his days in France, specialized in one specific type of three-pointer, the one-legged Trey. He used the move in FIBA play with the French national team and during his days playing for Mets 92, and he practices it, typically getting at least one up during his pregame routine. In Miami, during a shoot earlier this season, Wembenyama even had teammates Zach Collins and Sandrew. I'm not even going to try, attempting them <laughs> its first appearance in the nba was on january 2nd against the grizzlies dribbling near the logo when was working against then memphis center Bismack Biyombo, biombo with 10 seconds remaining on the shot clock women took one step off the grizzlies logo and rose up to one leg to fire a 30 footer from the top of the key it hit off the backboard then the rim then spun up in the air and hit the top of the backboard again before falling in that shit was wild vassal told the <laughs> that's a wild ass play i ain't never seen nobody shoot it off one leg like that let's go ahead and have a look at the one legged three.
8: Spurs are on average minus
7: seven points in third quarters. Moran trying to knock it away from champagne That is the worst.
6: Oh,
1: Here wow. is a
7: May 3
6: by Wimbanyama, and San Antonio has a lead. From-
1: Looked like he'd just be messing around in the backyard playing some horse with that shit. The whole crowd was just like, what? <laughs> what? What was this This whole crowd's Like, hold on a second. That does not compute at all. Uh, so then we move on my friends to January 4th versus the Milwaukee Bucks, an array of highlights. When asked what their favorite women Yama highlight of the season was multiple teammates cited their meeting with the Bucks two days after the Grizzlies games, but couldn't agree on which play was the best. Kelton Johnson's pick was a play in the second quarter. When women Yama answered a Giannis and Tentacupo highlight slam with one of his own with a twist. Wembenyama split a double team from Atena Kumpo and Pat Connaughton, but found himself just to the right of the free throw line with no momentum toward the basket. Too far to take off for a dunk, so he improvised. With a clear lane ahead of him, Wembenyama tossed the ball underhand off the glass, caught it while he was in air, and threw down a self alley-oop, the kind that is usually only seen in NBA All-Star games. That kind of happened in the moment, Wembenyama said. I saw the open lane, but I, dropped my... <laughs> I stopped my dribble a little too early, but I'm resourceful. Even with no dribble, I could do some stuff. I'm resourceful. Even with no dribble, I could do some stuff, he said. <laughs> Let's take a look at this. Do some stuff.
4: Pirouette to find the
6: two. And look at them guard one another. Trying to poke it away. Uh-oh, oh oh <laughs> right back, right? Didn't I say there was going to be play? <laughs> right afterwards. Just throw it off
2: the glass. That is schoolyard.
1: My dude is playing horse with everybody else. I'm telling you. 100%. <laughs> wow. So, moving on from that one. In the second half, Wembyama created more reels for his teammates to highlight. With just under 10 minutes to go in the third quarter, Wembeyama got a steal off a bad pass from Connaughton and only had Damian Lillard in his path. Lillard, perhaps sensing the looming futility of his effort, went for the strip, but Wembenyama went behind his back. As he did, he rose to the rim to dunk over a Brook Lopez contest women yama flex as he walked toward the spurs tunnel that led back to the locker room that topped the list for spurs guard Devonte graham i see him going to get ready to do the behind the back and i'm like oh okay that's tough but then i'm like oh shit is that brooke graham told espn brooke was coming from behind and i thought he was about to block it but somehow some way and yama barely jumped too. he just reached his arms up and dunked it that's definitely number one <laughs> um, so let's go ahead and have a look at this one now my friends
6: for when Benyama just put in his 10th 12
4: for Middleton when Benyama oh goes by- is- <laughs> stop this look at this
6: this is a round a guard in Lillard and a finish over a 7 footer
1: <laughs>
2: Yeah, you're not supposed to be able to do that oh,
1: no no and, and it's not like Brooke Lopez is some like second rate garbage NBA player you know like
2: <laughs> what i love is just how effortlessly he moved that ball usually for a big man like that he just can't move the ball swinging it around his hip like that and continue the flow but he did I'm like wow
1: yeah it's it's insane he's you know it, is he a little bit sloppy and janky right now yeah you know he's seven foot four without a whole lot of finesse and and training put to his game yet at a professional level, just wait three or four seasons, man. It's it's going to be unreal. Wait about three or four seasons and twenty or thirty more pounds in this dude. And
2: he's uh, really when Benyau... comfortable. He's really comfortable. I saw you while I was trying to get back on my other laptop was playing the show, and I saw his little behind the back. He's really comfortable maneuvering the ball behind the back and switching hands, and it's like. Wow. I didn't know that.
1: Wow. Yeah, it's and he looks very, very relaxed, you know, like that's the thing. He looks super relaxed and on top of it and just not even really not even really worried at all. Like he doesn't look like there's anything really um that's too hard for him. Like he just looks like he's, he almost looks like an, an animal that's in the process of figuring something out. Like you watch a dog learning a new trick or learning how to do something and they slowly figure it out and then they figure it out and they never struggle with it again. It's the same thing here. He's figuring right. it out and he's it's next season will be even better. And the year after that, my probably two years from now, when we're watching this kid, we're going to be going, holy shit. Like, what do we have here? Uh, Wembenyama capped off the ridiculous evening in the final minute of the game. As the Spurs were trying to complete the comeback, clinging to just a three-point lead, Antenokupo drove on Wembenyama and put his shoulder into the rookie, trying to use all of his 242-pound frame to knock the 209-pound Wembenyama out of the picture. Antenokupo rose for a dunk, but the long arms of Wembenyama were there to meet him. Let's go ahead and take a look at this one now, my friends. There's no way that Jones is going to be able to guard him. The screen, the
4: drive...
1: Ever do that again? What is wrong with you? Um <laughs> whew, boy, I tell you what, I've not seen Giannis get, get stuffed too many times like that, my friend. Uh according to Second Spectrum, it was only the second time this season Atene has been blocked on a driving dunk. Quote, the sky's the limit as long as you work hard and keep having a positive attitude and energy toward the game, Atene said. Everything that he dreams of is going to happen for him. I've seen him play. He played with my younger brother. I went and watched a couple games. I've seen him compete. And even then, I knew he was going to be special. But now seeing him playing against NBA players and doing the things that he's doing, it's pretty amazing. January 20th at the Washington Wizards, the no-look block. Trey Jones had a close-up look for perhaps Yama's unlikeliest block of the year. Like the double block against Houston, this one also played a crucial role in deciding the outcome of a game. With 38 and a half seconds remaining and the spurs up one, the wizard's Tyus Jones drove on his younger brother Trey Jones. He faked a pass to the left, which sent Wembenyama looking the other way. It seemed for a split second like the elder Jones was going to give the wizards a lead with a layup. Instead, without even turning to face Jones, Wembenyama reached out with his right hand and blocked the shot, leaving both Jones brothers in disbelief. That was crazy, Trey Jones said. He turned around, he started facing the other way, and I was like, no, my brother got him with the fake. Then he just 360'd it. I I don't even think he saw him lay up. I think he just turned and guessed where it was. It Uh was a crazy block. I know my brother was surprised. Let's have a look at this one now.
7: Yeah.
4: Yeah.
1: He just turned around and threw his hand. You know what that reminds me of, J.B.? couple weeks ago in this show we played uh greatest goaltenders in nhl history and there was that one dominic hasik who would kind of get beat with that deke to the right but he would kind of like flop and throw his hand back yeah. behind him it's almost exactly what when Bignana just did he knew he got beat and he just kind of rotated 180 and threw his hand up in the lane. that you can't teach that kind of shit like he just oh. knew where to throw his hand and knew where that ball and where trey jones was going to be what what a heads up instinctual play that you can't teach
2: that- You understand where you are in space. You don't have to visually see him. You understand where you are in space and where he's going so you can just be there. That's a skill. That's some peripheral. Oh, my goodness. Wow.
1: Wow. Unbelievable. Unbelievable, this kid. So getting close to the end of this article, my friends. January 26th, the Portland Trailblazers, the spike block. Wembenyama's highlight plays have drawn all sorts of reactions from opposing players, ranging from stunned silence to comic disbelief. In the preseason against the Miami Heat, there was a dunk on Thomas Bryant in which Bryant's incredulous reaction was captured by a fan behind the Heat bench. On December 15th against the LA Lakers, Wembenyama's put-back slam on Christian Wood made the Lakers bench look on in awe. But perhaps the funniest reaction so far came from Trailblazers guard Anthony Simon, Simons after he had a driving scoop layup blocked, to put it generously, by Wembenyama. As Simmons rose, Wimbanyama leaped from behind and slammed the shot straight down, where it hit the frostbank arena floor so hard that it bounced back up above the rim. After the game, all Simons could do was share his reaction on social media saying, that shit crazy. Let's go ahead and take a look at the spike block now, friends. Tried to dump it down to champagne. It's picked away by eight. Simon's weaving his way to the hoop. And there is <Destroyed>.
6: Oh, and, and if, with, oh with, with these blocks
7: built. You just Oof. want you, you, you could have grabbed that one <coughs> out of here. But when
4: you do this, I mean that sends a statement.
1: That is a young man acting as a full grown man, playing a full grown man's game, and when that young man becomes a full grown man, he's gonna make all the other full grown men look like young men. Yep. That's just yes.
2: That's him saying, let me let, let me show you something.
1: <laughs> right, right. Let me let me just go up in your soul for a second with this block. You're gonna be thinking about this for the rest of the night. January 27th versus the Minnesota Timberwolves, the tallest sham god ever. The move popularized in the United States by God Sham God is known to women Yama by a different name. The Botoroga, named after the current president of Euro League, Dejon Botaroga, who had a storied 18-year playing career in Europe. No matter what you call the move, doing it seven four is mind-boggling. During an appearance on TNT, Wembenyama said he works on all sorts of ball handling moves, including the Sham God, a crossover typically used by quick and shifty guards rather than giants of the game. When Wembenyama broke one out against Gobert and finished it with a scoop layup, his teammates couldn't even believe what they just witnessed. At this point, it's like whatever he's doing, you can't even be surprised to put it past him at this point because all the crazy things he's been doing, Trey Jones told ESPN. That wasn't even the first jaw-dropping dribble move he's pulled out this year. He executed a well-timed nutmeg on Rockets, Rockets guard Reggie Bullock in the preseason. I improvise sometimes and surprise myself sometimes when attack sit back on October 18th. I improvise sometimes, he says. When Benyama pulled off the sham god, only one person on the bench stood up. That was Malachi Branham, who might have been the only teammate to immediately realize exactly what Benyama just did. In the Spurs locker room, the Wemby sham god is the consensus pick of their favorite offensive play of the season. I've seen a lot of people do it. Chris Paul is good at that. CD Os- Osman told ESPN, but I ain't never seen a big man do something like that. So let's, final video clip of Wimby of this series. Let's take a look at the the big man Sham God.
6: Anthony Edwards saying, heck yes, Shake.
4: He didn't say heck oh. God. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Wimby with the guy, that oh, 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 oh. That is squeamed.
1: Yes. Oh, 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 oh that—that oh, 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 oh. <laughs> yeah. that, I'm looking at that one more time, man.
6: Anthony Edwards saying,
9: "Heck yes, shake." He didn't say that. Oh, <laughs> God, then he lays it in. <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh, a man yeah. to have that. Kind of touch and finesse and quickness at seven foot four and at 20 years old. Whew, JB, what what a player this kid is going to be. Before we move on, man, what are your thoughts on Wemby? Being able to finish.
2: This is the thing, you know? It's the complete package because he finished. He made the shot. Sometimes you get these moves, these players, the crowd goes wow, and the shot just won't drop. It's like, man, this kid is finishing too. Wow. Unbelievable.
1: He's uh it's just gonna be such a treat to watch him play in, in a few years' time. Man, I'm I'm really I mean, to be fair, it's a treat to watch him play now, but I'm just saying what what we're gonna watch this kid grow into. Um, man, it's it's gonna be something to behold. So moving on from that, my friends, Tuesday night. Uh, the Orlando Magic bestowed an honor upon Shaquille O'Neal, of which they have done to nobody that had played for their franchise before, and that is they have retired Shaquille O'Neal's numbers. So, real quick before I go over this article. Let's take a look at the video from that evening in the uh, in the Orlando Arena, my friends.
9: Could have been anywhere. You stayed for me. <clears throat> appreciate you, saying. <clears throat> thank you for giving me the opportunity to wear the blue and white. Orlando will forever hold a special place in my heart. I'll always be proud to be part of this magic franchise. Thank you all, and I appreciate you very much. And thank you guys. Without you guys, there would be no me. Greg, Latero, all you guys, I want you to stand up here with me because it's never about me, it's about us, and I couldn't be me without you guys, especially JTMF Money. And the MF stands for exactly what you think it stands for. <laughs> JTMF Money. So I want to appreciate you guys Thanks for coming out. And to, and to the, the DeVos family, whenever you want me to quit TNT and come back home, you give me a call. I'll be here in an
1: instant. Love you guys. <laughs> The big arist. I love Shaquille O'Neal, man. He's not just one of my favorite basketball players of all time. He's one of my favorite athletes of all time. Um, I mean, just, and it's just off the court. He's such a good dude. It's not even funny. Like, that's the thing. Like, he's, and he's never stopped being a good dude. And he's always been a good dude. Like, you're not, you've never heard any of these stories of Shaq beating people, assaulting women, doing drugs, getting drunk, driving his car. Like, a he always seemed dude. like a straight arrow. Yeah,
2: and I just remember him dancing at the All Star Game. You know, the having good fun. You know, That's right? It. And
1: <laughs> the th- you know what my favorite thing about Shaquille O'Neal is? He never took himself seriously ever. He was he he was always willing to poke a little fun or have some fun at his own expense to put a laugh on somebody else's face. And that's a gift. That's as much being able to make somebody else smile with your presence is as much of a gift as being able to put down 30 and 20 every night. Like Shaq has that gift.
2: He was, he was a sensation here with the Orlando Magic. He and Penny. Oh, man. It's just a oh, shame man. that couldn't have continued, you know, and Penny had oh. his little injuries
1: because they were phenomenal. You know, when you look back and I feel so – So heartbroken for Nick Anderson and all this, but you just think if he makes those two free throws, how different is Orlando's trajectory as a franchise since the mid-90s? Because you'd have to imagine they might have went on to win that championship, perhaps. They may have went on to win one or two more. They probably would have been able to keep Shaq in town. They would have kept Anfernee. Like, could have had something there. But it And the crazy thing is, is Nick Anderson was like a 92% lifetime free throw shooter. Like, the dude was not – it just – The moment gets to all of us sometimes, and that's what happened to Nick Anderson. And he was actually never the same after that. He never played to the level he did before that. Was kind of a shame. And I just, before I get into this article, let's just let's acknowledge the fact that Shaquille O'Neal was only a a, only played for the Atlanta Magic for six seasons. Did enough for them to say we're retiring your number. That's that's pretty pretty insane. So Shaquille O'Neal had his number thirty two jersey raised to the rafters by the Magic on Tuesday. Becoming the first player to have his number retired by that franchise. The LA Lakers and Miami Heat have both retired Shaquille's jersey. He's the fourth player to have his jersey retired by at least three different franchises, joining Bill Russell, Wilt Chamberlain, and Pistol Pete Maravich. That is pretty lofty company to sit beside with that honor, JB. What do you think?
2: Royalty. Basketball I t- royalty. And I just think he belongs. He belongs.
1: Oh, 100%, man. uh, Shaq spent, I'm sorry, four seasons, not six. Shaq spent four seasons in Orlando and won Rookie of the Year. He appeared in the All Star game each year with the Magic and led the franchise to its first NBA Finals in the 94 95 season. In 295 regular season games, Shaquille averaged 27.2 points, 12.5 rebounds, and 2.8 blocks per game, all of which rank in the top three for career averages in franchise history. Here's a look at more key numbers from Shaq's time in Orlando. 824. Shaquille swatted a lot of shots in four seasons with the Magic. 824 to be exact, the second most in Magic history. Who the fuck was first? His average of 2.8 per game leads the franchise in that category. He had 10 games at least 7 blocks, including a game with a career-high 15 in November of 1993. (laughs) That's absurd. 226. Throughout his 19-year career, Shaq only had 5 seasons where he didn't average a double-double. In Orlando, he had 226 double-doubles in 295 regular season games. In the playoffs, he had 25 double-doubles in 26 games. Shaq's 25-point and 11-rebound performance helped close out the Pacers in the 95 Eastern Conference Finals, sending the Magic to their first NBA Finals. 58.1% The four-time NBA champion shot a whopping 58.1% from the field in four seasons with the Magic. That's just behind Bo Outlaw 55, 58.5% for the highest career field goal percentage in franchise history. In games with at least 10 field goal attempts, Shaq's field goal percentage with Orlando peaked at 93.8% when he scored 33 points in a January 94 win. 20. Orlando finished 41-41 during Shaq's rookie season, a 20-win difference compared to the previous season, 21-61. and 61. For context, the Boston Celtics had a 32-win improvement over their pre- previous season when Larry Bird joined the team in 1979. The Magic narrowly missed the playoffs due to a tiebreaker, but they made the postseason in each of Shaq's remaining seasons. 22, Shaq did plenty of winning in the postseason with Orlando. In the 95 and 96 postseasons combined, the Magic won 22 playoff games. That total is the second most franchise postseason wins in a two-year span. Orlando won 23 between between 09 and the 2010 playoffs. After Shaq left in 96, the Magic had just 13 playoff wins from 97 to 98. Um... Most deserving to retire his number for the Magic. He was, to my mind, the best player that ever played in that franchise, despite only doing it for four seasons. So before uh, before we move on to a look at the NCAA rankings, let's take a look at Shaquille O'Neal's top ten moments with the Orlando Magic.
2: So young. <laughs> so full of life.
1: I know, just so goofy is a great word to describe Shaq, man he's goofy and he knows it and he doesn't care that wasn't too goofy though because he's literally te- <laughs> literally teabagging dikembe Matumbo right yeah. there yes. <laughs> over the dream on that one mm-hmm. that, that didn't happen often no Did I spy Robert Horry there, the most, like, underappreciated, least talk about seven time NBA champion in National Basketball Association's history? Penny Hardaway. Penny, now, he was special, too, now. Yeah.
8: That'd
1: be a good. Why's all this shit got to be against the Hornets, man? We can't have nice things. At least it's the heat. I mean, who was going to stand in front of the lane? Like, in front of Shaq? Yeah,
2: all... eventually Ben muffled. You muscle. muscle. But he was...
1: He was a hoss. Like... he had a lot of nicknames i think the big diesel might be the most appropriate one see what i mean
2: <laughs> yeah this became a thing <laughs>
4: yeah you know
1: playing. you know how in golf they had a tiger proof golf courses yeah. yeah. this was a thing in the early part of shack they literally had to shack proof basketball goals Ooh. I'm pretty sure he popped the glass out of one, two at one point, did he not? Mm, yes, he did.
2: Shaq
4: over to Skiles, puts up a three.
1: He How strong you have to be to rip a rim out of a basketball goal in the glass. Don't do that! Oh, you got me. Don't do that. <laughs> no. No. Oh man! That's well, why we can't have nice God, things. Blood. Oh, Larry! <laughs> what was you thinking, Larry? <laughs> Zo-, Zo had nothing for Shaq, and Zo wasn't no pushover at center either. But every time they played, Shaq just had to remind Zo a little bit that I'm a little bit better than you, brother. Nothing personal, but I'm better. Um man, what what a player, what what a career that dude had. Like I, I, I remember so many times just watch, I wasn't even a magic or lakers fan or heat fan or any of that but i just remember watching Shaq games just to see what he was going to do especially in his prime because he was going to do something that made you just like mm-hmm. do the double take with the mouth of gate man what a absolutely incredible player incredible human being We find yeah. some videos of some of the stuff this guy does in his free time for people he's also a legitimate sheriff's deputy too not like hey here's your honorary sheriff's deputy thing but like actually went through the courses and training and all that and is a legitimate sheriff's. I can't remember what parish it is in Louisiana, but he's a sheriff's deputy for a parish in Louisiana. Um, I'm going to switch our focus over to college basketball. We're going to be doing more of that here lately. And JB, college basketball, is it me or is it absolutely insane this season? How many teams up toward the top keep stumbling and falling? It's almost like nobody really wants to be the number one team in the country right now. Um, And nobody really wants to lay any kind of claim to number one seeds for the tournament either. It's like every time we think we've got some teams locked in for a number one seed in this tournament, you see them stumble a little bit. So um, almost as much as I did not envy the college playoff football committee is about how much I don't envy those who have to pick the number one seeds for this NCAA tournament. Let's take a look at the AP top 25 friends sitting number one, defending national champion, UConn Huskies at 22 and two. Number two are the Purdue Boilermakers. They also sit at 22 and two. And I guess if I had to say there are two teams that seem a little bit better than the rest of the pack right now, JB, I would have to go with UConn and Purdue. What do you think of that?
2: Definitely UConn.
1: Not sure about Purdue.
2: Um, they're going to have a chance to prove themselves, but UConn for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know what? I, I echo your sentiment on Purdue. And it's not that I don't think they're good. It's just that for some reason, there's something internally that will not let me full on buy Purdue as a serious, like, not that they're not a serious team, but I don't know. There's, I I can't fully buy in on them, JB, and I'm not sure why, man. It's kind of weird. Moving ahead, we got number three, Houston at 21 and three. They've also been good. They moved up two spots from number five to number three. You got Marquette moving up three spots to number four at 18 and five. Arizona moving up three spots to number five at 19 and five. You had Kansas fall two spots to number six at 19 and five. And you had Carolina fall four spots from number three to number seven at 19 and five. They had that big win over Duke and then immediately lost a couple games, one to Clemson and the other one to Syracuse. That's what's so absolutely insane about this college basketball season is there's really no kind (laughs) of, it's like I said, it's almost like nobody wants wants to be a number one team. Tennessee at number eight. 17 and six you got my duke blue devils at number nine at 18 and five iowa state number 10 at 18 and five you got south carolina moving in moving up to number 11 at 21 and three baylor moves up a spot to number 12 at 17 and six auburn sitting at number 13 at 19 and five you had illinois fall four spots to number 14 at 17 and six alabama moving up a spot 17 and seven at number 15 number 16 are the dayton flyers at 19 and four they move up two spots Creighton moving up two spots as well to number 17. He had St. Mary's making a huge jump up eight spots to number 18 at 20 and 6. BYU moving up two spots to 17 and 6. Wisconsin with a, tuple cu- tuple cuff? a couple tough <laughs> losses, dropping them down nine spots to number 20 at 16 and 8. Virginia moving up five spots to number 21 at 19 and 5. You had Kentucky fall five spots all the way down to number 22 at 16 and 7. Uh, number 23 is Indiana State. They've moved up three spots. Uh, They sit at 22 and three Florida Atlantic falling four spots down to 24 at 19 and five and rounding out the top 25 are the Oklahoma Sooners at 18 and six JB before we have a look at some bracketology. Is there anything you like dislike super agree with super disagree with whatever about these rankings my friend
2: look solid. I mean the talent is spread out so evenly that it just seems like the norm now. The tournament is going to be wide open. And it's one reason why I'm just hoping and praying my Gators, who who took down Kentucky and took down Auburn, uh, if they can just get in that groove, we can do some damage this season. So I just, we got to get in the tournament first, <laughs> you know.
1: Yeah, that's, um, you know, I I said it last week on the show, it's like, Duke has been bouncing around, I guess, between like five and number 10 all season, you know, had spurts of poor play spurts of good play, but that's kind of happened with everybody in the country. Um, It's going to be such a wide open tournament. I can't look at any of those top 25 teams and say, well, that team's going to win the national championship unless they defeat themselves. They're just not, there's not that team. If there's team that was close to being that right now, it's UConn for me that could say, look, they kind of, They play their game. They're going to win the national championship, but it is so wide open this season. I feel like that is a, a horribly amateur and ill-advised statement to say because I feel like any of these teams in the top 25 right now could go on a, a rip in the tournament and wind up in the final four national championship game, even cutting down the nets. Um, so very, very interesting, man. College basketball has been a ride this season. This is what you and I talk about with the – with the parody as well. You know, we've, we've seen the parody rise up and this is a byproduct of that, which is certainly not a bad thing. So I found a video on CBS sports last night. Um, I will, I will uh, unmute so I can talk at certain points in this one, but it's uh, their bracketology update, um, which kind of, I needed because I hadn't, haven't paid as much attention to college basketball as I usually do. So this is going to kind of bring, bring me back up to speed at the very least JB. So I can be coherent with our college basketball conversations moving forward for the rest of the season. So let's have a look at some bracketology science from CBS, my friends.
11: Right, we're talking Bracketology and weekend winners. We had a pack weekend in college hoops. Memphis picking up a big win against Tulane, beating the Green Wave 90-78. to Three players scored in the double digits for the Tigers, led by a game-high 23 points from David Jones. Right now in Jerry Palm's latest Bracketology, though, Memphis, they are on Bracketology Bubble Watch, Brandon, part of the first four-out crew. Okay. And we talked about never counting out Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs, but we shouldn't count out Tom Izzo and Michigan State as March inches closer. Either the Spartans getting a huge quad one win over Illinois over the weekend. Made an appearance in 25 straight NCAA tourneys looking to make it 26. And another big upset this weekend, Gonzaga over Kentucky, the Zags quad one opportunities were dwindling down now they finally have one they get their first win against a ranked opponent this season against the uk being the wildcats 89-85 at rough arena it snaps a four game road losing streak for gonzaga getting a look at their resume though jerry palm still has them the first four out they are one in five when it comes to quad one and their best net win they picked it up right then over the weekend against kentucky Speaking of uh, first four out, here are the teams New Mexico, Cincy, Gonzaga, and Memphis. The Zags and Memphis both at 18 and 6. But as of right now, their latest bracketology for Jerry Palm, which by the way is up on CBSSports.com, they are the first four out. So let's welcome in Matt Norlander and Jerry Palm to discuss it currently talking about Gonzaga projected as one of those first four out. We just saw that full screen there. They do get a quad one win over the weekend, their first one of the season. But Jerry, I'll start with you. If they do want to get to the tournament, what does that path look like for Gonzaga here on out?
10: Well, they have to beat St. Mary's at St. Mary's at the end of the regular season if they want an at large bid. Uh, and then, of course, they have to win all the games in between then as well. Uh, then maybe they can afford to lose to St. Mary's in the conference tournament and possibly still get an at-large bid. That's the only path that really gives them much hope for an at-large bid. Uh, Of course, they could also just win the conference tournament and then get in that way. But if they want an at-large bid, I believe they've got to win all the way through the regular season, including that season finale at St. Mary's. I
1: didn't realize Gonzaga was yeah, in such see, rough shape. San Fran
10: game there. That's right. not even at San Fran. That is at the Chase Center, home of the
12: Warriors. Um maybe that actually benefits Gonzaga from an environment standpoint because you're not going into a bandbox there. I don't think Gonzaga will do that. I don't think Gonzaga will win out in the regular season. Uh, And so by virtue of what Paul just talked about, I'm highly suspect that Gonzaga is going to have an at-large worthy resume by the time the WCC regular season wraps. As a reminder, the WCC's regular season schedule is a week ahead of most other conferences. Um, I think that Gonzaga will make the tournament by virtue of the automatic bid and whether that means they beat St. Mary's or anyone else in the championship game. I think they're going to get there because Mark Few has gotten there every year. He's been a head coach. But I think this is going to be the rare year where they will tip off the WCC championship game, knowing uh, that they need to win it in order to ensure that they make the tournament. Most years, that's not been the case. I think that'll be the case this season.
11: Yeah, a little dicey for Gonzaga this season, but their tournament hopes they are still alive. UConn, they're looking to go back to back. They're number one in the latest AP Top 25. Now, Purdue, they're actually in that number one spot in Gary Parish's Top 25 and one. So Matt, I'll start with you. What is the main difference between these two teams and who do you think is actually better, Purdue or UConn?
12: Uh, okay, I, I think UConn is the to go reverse order. I think UConn is the better team. Uh, I, and I'm aware that I'm talking with Jerry Palm, uh, distinguished Purdue alumnus. He gets his retort in just a second here. But if they were to play tomorrow on a neutral court, throw them in the middle of, I don't know, North Dakota. I would take, I would take UConn because I've seen UConn be dominant this season and not be at full strength for every single game for almost the entire season. And still, they're awesome. I also want to be clear about one thing here, too, as well. You see that how Parrish has a number one. A reminder, and GP talks about this on the Ion College Basketball Podcast, it's key to know that Parrish basically does his rankings similar to how Palm builds his bracketology. Parrish is putting Purdue number one because it is inarguable that Purdue has the strongest resume in the sport. Like, not, not up for debate. <laughs> Palm has it right now, and if the committee convene tonight in an emergency situation and fielded his bracket for tomorrow, Purdue would be the number one overall seed. I don't think there's that much gap between these two. I think they're the two true teams that have a case to be quote-unquote elite teams this season in a year in which we've seen so many top 10 teams kind of come and go in the poll.
10: Yeah, Purdue and UConn have kind of separated themselves from the rest of college basketball, even from Houston, who's the third team on the, on the top line of the bracket. And there's a gap between Houston and the rest of uh, college basketball at the moment as well. But... These two teams have been the two best teams all year. I don't, I'm not going to sit here and predict a winner. It's a toss-up game. Uh, They're both great teams. The reason Purdue is the number one seed is just the strength of their schedule and the quality of their wins. And I'll just give you an example. They both beat Gonzaga on a neutral site. That is UConn's second best win. It's Purdue's seventh best win. And that's why Purdue has a better resume than UConn and why they're the number one overall seed in my bracket today. I'm going
11: to come I think my dude's trolling a bit with that two, no smoking sign to in pineapple. Actually, I'll, I'll one expand and in, in a minute. Rankings we showed the top 10. Duke is up there. They're in action tonight against Wake Forest and Matt, I'll start with you because I know you want to talk about this Wake Forest team and this, this is obviously all Duke that won they they that game against Wake to Forest tournament in March. Is this a must-win situation for Wake Forest in your opinion? Well, I can't call it must-win only because they—they they will have like. Actually, I actually have two Donner points to make Virginia
1: about that Saturday, fella in the middle. So a loss at Duke. If you win at Virginia Saturday, I, I guarantee you. If you ask Steve
12: Forbes right now, would you take a split on the road at at Cameron and at John Paul Jones Arena? He would take it every single time there. I, I think this is a wonderful game. I, I'm just ready to watch it because Wake Forest has not had many instances in recent years. We're like tonight, the Monday night slate, not that populated. You got a standalone type game at Cameron here, and you can see what's uh, what's upcoming here for Wake Forest. Hunter Salas is a name to know. He's coming off a huge 33 point performance at home over the weekend against NC State. So he's been tremendous this season. Andrew Carr is a 40% uh, shooter. Uh, it's been too long since we've seen Wake Forest be relevant and, and, true, and truly a team worth watching. This one has a chance, although This program has not won at Cameron Endor Stadium since Tim Duncan was
4: in uniform. Tim Duncan had a decade of
12: NBA career. He has since retired uh, for years, and they haven't won since 97. Wow, I didn't realize it had been that long since Wake won and
1: won at Cameron. Yeah, this is a really important game for Wake Forest. They
10: don't have a lot of chances to resume build. They don't have a quad one win, but they did beat Virginia at home. Uh, so that that's a game over a team that's at least for now in the bracket. I agree with that. At and, this and, point, I don't think Wake Duke is in. Florida, uh, but this is you know a game where they can really make a statement, and they've got a chance. I mean, Pitt won at Cameron this year, so you know Wake Forest can win there. Uh, Duke hasn't been invincible this year by any stretch, but this would be a huge, huge win for them, easily their best. Of Nobody the in college Probably basketball has been invincible,
4: even if they do well
10: between now. And the end of the regular season so yeah this checks some boxes for them that they need to check the quality win against the top team away from home uh really fill some holes in their tournament resume it doesn't guarantee them anything there's a long way to go and they can't really afford to give it up down the line but uh, yeah this would be big for them tonight for
11: sure yeah seeing that wake for it's
1: interesting bracketology there and i tend to agree that like the two most two best looking teams in the country purdue uh, Purdue and UConn and everybody else. I do disagree with, with the take that Purdue's the number one overall team in the country. I understand their strength. The schedule is tough, but to me, uh, JB, you and I talk often about the eye test. UConn passes the eye test for me as being the best team in the country right now. Certainly the fastest, most skilled team in the country right now. Um, but there are still some other teams in that top 10 that can do damage if they get on a run. Duke being one of those teams, Carolina being one of those teams. Um, man I, I don't know that I've been as excited for an NCAA tournament as I'm I'm excited for the way this one is is it looks like it could shape up to be an all-timer JB
2: and that other Carolina and Columbia is having a really surprising season that coach has done a phenomenal job and uh, they may win the SEC and you think about what their women are doing and then the men it's like big times for the Gamecocks.
1: Meanwhile, Gamecock football fans are over there like, <laughs> can we get some maybe? <laughs> like, uh, But you're not wrong. That that Carolina squad down there, for the, the other Carolinas, you put it, they, they've they only got two or three losses on the season too. Um, and if they were an ACC or Big Ten team, you'd probably see them a bit higher ranked than they currently are. They kind of um, – they always get disrespected, even within their own conference, which is – you and I talk about South Carolina always has respectable teams – uh, whether it come to football, basketball. Um, some point they're going to get over that hump, man. At some point they are. And who knows, maybe this season might be one of those humps they get over with their basketball team.
2: Yeah, they, they just look like they hit a home run with this guy. He he really, really seems like he knows what he's doing. So we'll see what they do in the tournament this year.
1: And, and not just that, but he legitimately seems like he wants to be there, JB. Like he wants to make the Gamecocks. A, a nationally recognized program. And there's certainly, I mean, you saw they crept into the standings this week or the ranking, rankings this week. It's kind of up to them right now. They could, who knows? We'd be sitting here from a month from now talking about South Carolina. Where the hell did they come from to become a number one seed? That's how well they've yeah. played this season. Absolutely. They,
2: they love basketball in Columbia. So it oh. will be a huge thing if both the men and the women are able to make noise.
1: Oh, absolutely, man. So uh, we're going to move on ahead to some hockey now, my friends. And we're going to take a look at some hockey standings and um, Connor McDavid doing Connor McDavid things as well as some top saves. So here we go, my friends. Time for a little bit of stick and puck. No, what makes me mad, man, is I wanted to use that font for another project I was working on, and I didn't save that font in my favorites. Oh. Now I can't remember what font it is. And there are about 7,000 different fonts right. in my video editing software. <laughs> so the chances of me finding that some bitch again, unless I just happen to stumble over it, are pretty small. Rest in peace, wonderful font. Rest in peace. So moving on to some NHL standings now, my friends. The NHL is about two, I think, two weeks away from the trade deadline. We're about a month and a half or so away from NHL playoff time, so it's really starting to heat up. As you see here in the Atlantic Conference, the Florida Panthers have caught the Boston Bruins. The Panthers, the defending Eastern Conference champions, are just as strong this season, if not stronger than they were last season. The Panthers sit at 35-15-4 and 4 for 74 points. They are 8-2-0 and in their last 10. They were playing some extremely good hockey right now. They are tied atop that division with the Boston Bruins who are 32, 12, and 10. The Bruins are 5, 4, and 1 in their last 10, hitting a little bit of a slump. Lightning sit third in that division at 30, 20, and 5 for 65 points. Toronto Maple Leafs right behind them at 28, 16, and 8 for 64 points, followed by the Red Wings at 27, 20, and 6 for 60 points. The rebuild is going splendidly in Detroit. They're, in my estimation, right on track. They're kind of where I thought they would be at this point. It's got to be encouraging for Detroit fans to see. The Canadians sit 6th in that division, 22, 24, and 8 for 52 points, followed by the Buffalo Sabres at 23, 26, and 4 for 50 points. Super disappointing season for Buffalo so far. Many folks, myself included, thought Buffalo was going to be right in the thick of a playoff push this year. Wrapping up, last place in that division are the Ottawa Senators at 22, 26, and 2. Moving on to the Metropolitan Division, New York Rangers sit atop that division. They, they've they led wire to wire so far in this division. They're 35-16-3 and three for 73 points, 7-2-1 Seven, in their last 10. Rangers have as good of a chance to win a cup this year as they have since 1994. However, uh, the other night they lost one of their um, bigger contributors up front, and Blake Wheeler went down with a knee injury. I'm not showing that video here because it was one of those ones like – You remember remember back in the day the Theismann thing or or there was a Monday night game in the mid-90s with the Raiders and Napoleon Kaufman's knee went about 90 degrees the wrong way. uh, It was the same thing here with Blake Blake Wheeler. And the sad thing is is Blake Wheeler is um, arguably the toughest hockey player I've ever seen, right, JB? This guy played a playoff game. Actually, he played multiple playoff games with cracked ribs because his team needed them. Now, I'm certain at this point in your life, you've cracked a couple ribs. I've done the same breathing is damn near impossible, much less playing a full contact sport like hockey with cracked ribs. This guy, look, uh, look, disclaimer, all the men out there right now are about to have like the heartiest cringe they've had all year. In my estimation, this dude finished a playoff game with a ruptured testicle. Okay. That's oh. how tough this guy is. When he, w- when he went down with his knee the other night, um, he was kicking his good leg on the ice and literally screaming and crying in pain. That's how bad his knee got torn up. The, the thing is, he's like 37, 38 years old. It may very well have been the last time we see one of the better American players that's ever played on the ice in the NHL because it was, it was bad. And it's going to be, a. his game is not what it was, right? But his leadership in the locker room and what he brings to the bench are what the Rangers are going to miss the most. So, Hopefully he can recover fully. We get to see Wheeler back on the ice again, man. But that was one of the rougher knee injuries I've ever seen in any sport, much less hockey. Sitting right behind the Rangers, well, not right behind. Eight points behind the Rangers are my Carolina Hurricanes at 30, 17, and 5, 6 4, and 0 in our last 10. Quite frankly, I'm amazed that we are 30, 17, and 5. We've been kind of rolling around with a ragtag collection of goaltenders all season because uh, Freddie Anderson, our starting goaltender, went down in November with a blood clotting issue. JB, imagine uh-huh. that. Hmm. wonder what caused that. Um, Good news for Hurricanes fans and Anderson is he's back on the ice practicing with the team, which when he plays, he's one of the best goaltenders in the NHL. problem is health has always been an issue with him. Um, and reading the Hurricanes are going to do, trying to do something pertaining to goaltending at the trade deadline would be a huge help to us for sure. Right behind us are my wife's Philadelphia Flyers at 29, 19, and 7, actually tied with us at 65 points. The Flyers are outplaying themselves this season. What I mean is that they were in a rebuilding phase. Folks thought they were going to be two, three, four years out from contending for a playoff spot. Here we are, second season of John Tortorella's tenure in Philadelphia. Flyers are right there contending for a playoff spot. And I've said all along, asshole as John Tortorella may be, he is one of the best coaches in the NHL. JB, you may remember him. Um, He's the guy that stood up for Provorov last year when Provorov said, no, I'm not wearing your pride jersey. Uh, Tortorella's the one that when everybody was taking a knee, he stood very much against players taking a knee and disrespecting the flag. He's um very outspoken, blunt, very honest, hard on his sleeve kind of guy. Has a reputation for being a dick, but I personally love him. I think he's one of the best coaches in the NHL and certainly one of the best American coaches of all time. Right behind the Flyers are the New Jersey Devils, who are certainly struggling when compared to last season. They were 27-22-4 for 58 points. They've missed Jack Hughes for the greater portion of the season with an injury. He's finally back for them. That should make a turn. For the better for them. The New York Islanders struggling a little bit under new head coach Patrick Waugh. They sit at 22, 18, and 13 for 57 points, followed up by the Pittsburgh Penguins at 24, 20, and 7 for 55 points. The Washington Capitals 23, 21, and 8 for 54 points, and the Columbus Blue Jackets sit last in the Eastern Conference at 16, 26, and 10 for 42 points. They actually just fired damn near their entire front office yesterday, like a sweeping wind from a hurricane that comes across your front porch. The, the director of hockey operations is like you, you and you get the fuck out was pretty much what happened in Columbus yesterday. Um, there was none of that. You suck. You suck. You're okay. You su-. No, it was, you all suck. Get out. <laughs> That's basically what happened in Columbus yesterday. Moving on to the Western conference, the Dallas stars sit atop the central division, 34, 14 and six for 74 points. They are eight, one and one in their last 10, absolutely on fire. The Avalanche 33-18-4 for 70 points. They won the Stanley Cup two years ago, looking to get back to that place but struggling a little bit. The Winnipeg Jets, who held the top spot in the West for ages but have come back down to earth a little bit. 32, 14, and 5. They are 4, 5, and 1 in their last 10, highlighting what I said about coming back to earth a little bit. The St. Louis Blues finally playing some hockey that we're used to seeing from the St. Louis Blues. They sit at 29, 22, and 2 for 60 points out there in the Central Division. The Nashville Predators at 27, 25, and 2 for 56 points, followed by the Minnesota Wild, 25, 23, and 5 for 55 points. The Wild are one of those teams where I say, I hate using injuries as an excuse, but their downturn this season has most definitely been injuries. It's kind of hard to to, to win hockey games when half of your squad is literally an AHL team for a couple months at a time. The Arizona Coyotes, 23, 25, and four for 50 points, and bringing up the rear in that division and the West as a whole. The Chicago Blackhawks, 14, 37, and three for 31 points, 1, 8, and one in their last 10. Leading the West and the NHL right now are the Vancouver Canucks at 37, 12, and six for 80 points, 7, 1, and two in their last 10. Having recently acquired Elias Lindholm, that team is stacked and ready to go on a cup run right now. I got, I got to kind of label them as as the favorites to perhaps make it to the finals, even lift the Cup. Vancouver, if they can do that this season, would be the first Canadian team to win the Stanley Cup since 1993, JB. Wow. Um, Right behind them in the Pacific are the defending Stanley Cup champion, the Vegas Golden Knights, who certainly do not appear to be suffering any sort of a cup hangover. 31-16-6, 7-2-1 in their last 10. They're turning it on at the right time. The Edmonton Oilers, 31, 18, and 1. They've hit a three-game skid since that uh I'm sorry, they've hit a, they've lost three of their last four since that 16-game winning streak. Uh they were not able to set the record there. They fell one game shy of tying it, but nonetheless, after their horrid start, they are squarely in playoff position now. Uh, and the Oilers are, are definitely primed to go on a run, in my opinion. Los Angeles Kings, having just fired their head coach, they sit at 25, 16, and 10 for 60 points. They were 4-4-2 in their last 10. Started the season really well and have hit an absolute brick wall, which is why their coach got yeeted into orbit. The Seattle Kraken, having made the playoffs last year and only their second year of existence, sit fifth in the Pacific Division at 23-21-10 for 56 points. Hit a little bit of a skid recently as well. The Calgary Flames cannot seem to get it together this season. They are 25-24-5 for 55 points. Just haven't been able to, they've not been the same since they uh, they had that blockbuster trade uh, before last season started trading Matthew Kachuk to the Florida Panthers. They've not been the same since they let him go. Uh, the Anaheim Ducks sitting next to last in the division, nineteen thirty-two and 2 for 40 points. And the San Jose Sharks, 15-33-5 for 35 points. So the standings and playoff picture becoming a little more clear in the NHL. It's kind of easier to tell who may make it, who may not. But I still can't tell you. Uh, it's it's just like we were talking about those college basketball rankings, JB. It's... um. It's so widespread and there are so many good teams, it's hard to pick a clear cut favorite. But what I wanted to take a look at is we talked about, we've talked about on the show before, Connor McDavid. I've told you how ridiculously good this guy is. Uh, we talked about the Oilers, their 16 game winning streak. That came to an end. But the other night, I think it was uh, Monday night, Monday night or Tuesday night, Connor McDavid had himself a freaking game. Let's take a look at some highlights from this game in which Connor McDavid decided that. One assist wasn't good enough, two assists wasn't good enough, nor was three assists. My dude ended up having oh. six assists in this what? game. So let's have a look at Connor McDavid facilitating six different goals for the Edmonton Oilers.
7: Nugent Hopkins will give it right back to him. Angled off the boards. Nurse guides over to Cece. His shot. Defense.
6: And then get it to the net with a screen in front. Once again, you gotta fight through the check of Cider. Nugent Hopkins does and then gets a piece of it, maybe en route. It'll be interesting who they give it to for lead Detroit
7: in this period. McDavid from Bouchard. Sider wraps him up. McDavid on Nugent. That's a Bouchard
1: scores. 3 1 at the team. My dude is just sitting there having a with cup Moe of Sider tea waiting on that the, puck. <laughs> on <the force> that <laughs>
4: Sider
9: kind of gets a stick in there.
1: McDavid kind of grabs the He's honing on to the puck second with one hand. Like, one of the best defensemen in the NHL is Drake all over him and can't even get near the puck. Bouchard, who comes late. And everybody puck watching when McDavid has the puck. Look at everybody funnel towards it. Bouchard left all alone. It's, it's a very real thing with him harder. too, just as it was with Michael Jordan. A lot of people tend to watch McDavid play when he gets the puck.
7: McDavid with the steal,
4: centering
9: Oh.
6: the steal but it's the four check and McDavid I mean this guy hunts
7: down pucks and that's exactly what he does this is a terrific save
1: on this it's not so much that he got the assist line. on that play he literally made it happen with his four check and stealing the puck in Detroit's zone, in zone man
7: hey. Reunited here in the third period with Edmonton holding a 4-3 lead Newton Hopkins makes a move for Wollman a shot oh!
1: Right there, after giving the puck up, he gets in the zone, then he creates the screen on the goaltender. See, real good right here, and screen.
4: Oh, He's so I didn't he see that. He is
1: so good. He impacts the play when he doesn't have the puck, man. <laughs> 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 oh. At what point do you look like? All right, this dude's just having fun with him now.
4: right
6: out of the and just watch McDavid go to work
1: here. This bouncing puck, a little
6: chopper to the neutrals. Yes, show me this again. finishes. <coughs> Get the paddle down.
7: So McDavid now with five assists. Doesn't have to do anything silly, Unbelievable. Nugent Hopkins. He skated out up top, shoveled over Kulak. Nugent Hopkins, McDavid
1: rolling toward the net, broken up. Nugent Hopkins, mm. it's at it home. It's the LeBron effect, you know. A give man. him the ball, draw everybody, give it to the open guy. McDavid.
6: Watch how he comes off the boards. He's got a great step, first step. Get some distance between him and the wings defender, moving away from Valeno.
1: The thing is if they don't collapse on him like that he's probably going to score. And in, in yeah. the All-Star skills competition, you know, the NHL does the accuracy shooting and Connor McDavid set the record this year. My dude went 4 for 4 I think in like a little over 4 seconds. So it was like clack 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 and all of them were done. Like wow. he he will put it so that's it, he's so hard to defend, JB, because his burst as well. Like you can be on top of him, he takes a couple strides. He's at full, full stride and there's no skater in the NHL in Connor McDavid's atmosphere. So it's, he's, he's very, um, women Yama ish in that he's such a freak athlete and so talented at this sport. He makes it look easy. And I think despite the ridiculous numbers we've seen from Connor McDavid at this point in his career, this is like, I think his sixth or seventh season. We're really seeing him figure it out now. Like he's got his man body. He's getting that like mid later twenties wisdom about him. And he's really just controlling. Like every time he has the puck, he's just controlling whatever happens on the ice. And I think the next ten years from Connor McDavid are just going to be. Uh, you know, he's he's not going to catch Gretzky's point record, but I think as far as modern era hockey goes, like let's say from ninety five or two thousand on, he's going to obliterate everybody's everybody's stats and records. He's just that unreal. Little, that,
2: that little swirl he did. Wow, that's, that's what um, he
1: does. That's,
2: that's incredible.
1: He does the thing I've not seen any other player. He has the gift I've not seen any other player in my time watching hockey have except for Wayne Gretzky, and that is that Connor McDavid sees the ice from almost an elevated position, almost a 40,000-foot view, if you will. Like, he knows what his teammates are going to do, what lanes they're going to be in, where they're going to be. He knows where the other team's going to be, and he knows the other goaltender's tendencies. Like, he is a true student of the game. They say before every game, this dude's watching tape on the other goaltender is watching tape on – D. like, he just – He doesn't stop. He's a machine built to play hockey. Rarely, even when he does interviews, he's got the personality of a snail. Like, it's almost like, yeah, I'm going to do this interview because I have to, but I'm not going to give you a whole lot. Like, it's just going to be what it is, and then I'm out. Um, Just fantastic player, man. That's kind of the problem hockey has. They get these dudes that are super, (laughs) super talented and good, except they all happen to be these, like, introverted isolated white boys that don't really have any kind of inkling whatsoever to cultivate a brand for themselves or any kind of popularity other than just dominating the game they play, which isn't necessarily a bad thing by the way. I'm just saying like hockey has a hard time finding personalities. They can really sell, you know, um, talent be damned, I guess. So last thing from hockey, we're going to take a look at before we scoot on into touching upon the Daytona 500 before we get out of here for the day. Top 10 saves from, you guessed it week 17 keck of the nhl season enjoy my friends i mean this is a remarkable save he has been the best goalie for me in the league right now
3: i think i pull a muscle just watching him do that
7: wrist shot on rebound aside tonight on an amazing save by lukanen
11: if the buffalo sabers can come back and tie or win this game mark that save right there that's a huge one he stretches wow. out left to right i think i pull a muscle just watching him do that
6: Moves in, center shot, oh. save off Perry, leave up. save off Kane.
8: Big saves, Dave. Man, that first one, and then the second one, Nick. Riddick had to come across. Watch this wide
10: open net, no way. But then the second one, he holds on.
7: Oh, that'll be hammered by Randy and lose. Puck rocks, that across on Auntie Ronta, welcome into this one. Toe save on McKinnon. Tries to hold out Pinto.
8: He's got a breakaway. Moves in, shirts denied, rebound. Back to back stops by Terasov.
6: Shane Pinto, oh, shoot, stop, rebound. Oh, my goodness, what a save on the second chance by Terasov and Pinto had two looks.
7: What a breakaway. Morris could shoot the head back. What a save! What a in. Oh, and Kentucky just slammed his stick on the glass after that one. Husterson stayed with it and shot
8: that left leg out. Oh, what a save. I mean, come on. That's just an outstanding save, and it just gets skate blade on it. was available.
6: Fiala
4: has it. Skinner kicked it
7: out. And Stuart Skinner just stays with him, extends the glove, and denies rape on the blue paint. Excellent save in tight, and Fiala looking into the sky once again. 5-on-3 Philadelphia, Zabula, fights. Paling, centering pass, what a
6: stop by Grossois, he got the paddle on it, this. case is denied. Does brossois get a piece of this? There's a shot, you bet he does, paddle to the post. Remember last year we saw Hellebuck make at least
9: two of those types of saves?
6: brossois with his best save of the night.
7: Provinced on winds and shoots, that one changed directions, Sorokin had to make two great saves, the
6: change
1: of
7: direction and then it right the stick of this one though, off the skate of first.
1: It's like there was nothing but net, and then there was goaltender. What
4: a stretch that was. I mean, oh my goodness. Look at
1: this stretch.
2: And reach in, reach in. Oh my Incredible. Oh man. Tremendous save. You're right, Brent. It could be two-nothing
6: with uh, shorter legs. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> and when has picked up right where he left off and that's why he's the NHL's first star of the week. I arrest
1: my case. the guy goes down his head's at the crossbars cuz he's like Makes fucking 6 foot 7 well. before he puts skates on. He he's
4: <laughs> got the best glove of any goaltender in the league and
1: he showed it right there to Markstrom. he doesn't have the best glove of any goaltender in this cuz he doesn't have to move his glove to catch anything cuz he's so big. <laughs> the beautiful glove save by Markson. Jokes aside, Markstrom I mean, does have a pretty fast self. glove. That's twice in the period. Ridiculous. I
6: mean, he has been the best goalie for me in the league right now.
1: Eh. American Airlines Center. Now redirects on save kept alive. No, they here's your best goaltender in the league.
7: He for sure looked
1: down and out. How did he keep it out? he kick that he puck back out to him, has him has just so he could make that glove save? <laughs> It back, we'll check across,
2: back to Martyr. Oh, what a stop! No soup for you! <laughs> <laughs> That's some respect. Yes,
1: respect. I literally watch none this. of the all-star the stuff this, this year, JB. Not for not for the NHL, and probably not for the NBA either. Disgust, like I just feel like they've absolutely trashed these all-star games from what they used to be. Nope. He comes in virtually uncontested.
2: in eyes up, trying to bury the puck. Cannot get it past. Oh, that was a good,
9: a good effort to scroll.
6: stop or what from jacob markstrom incredible save that as i mentioned that looks like a certain goal for he sure here's favor throwing it in front erickson that couldn't finish oh, oh wow. just gets his skate blade on it
4: stretching across on that yeah. bang, bang <laughs> I, blade. What a oh, save wow delcovich to end this
9: period oh
1: That's wow yeah. <laughs> literally the last quarter inch of his skate plate <laughs> Big stop by Corral Vomelka. That left pad out of nowhere. Those jerseys are insanely sick. Vomelko makes the
6: save. Oh, his best save of the night. And a turnover here. Barbersett is in. Barbersett right to the net. What a stop! Oh. Somebody
7: deflecting that. I don't know what just happened. Malka, Superman, across the blue paint,
5: and
6: he just gets enough of that. Oh yeah! Just gets a stick on it. Two on one. Here come the Oilers. McDavid
1: gets it over. Don't stop! <laughs> wow! Wow! The ability to stop while moving to your left like that and immediately go the other way is.
7: Tries to tuck it home in the right extension of the pad.
1: I mean, granted, yeah, I used to do that, but nowadays, at my age, that just makes my groin and core really sore. <laughs> I can safely say I will never play this sport again. I'll continue to watch and love it, but. a good the style points are I Hate to admit it, but I like those jerseys too, even though it's fire oh, 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 how is that? Not one of the top ten. My goodness. Robertson. Oh, because it was Jordan Bennington. He's a gigantic asshole. Never mind.
6: Bennington, What a save. Back to the point. The Bouchard's got that great job. Oh. What a save on the rebound by Huso. Oh, what a stop on Ryan Nugent Hopkins
7: by Billy Huso's into the game early. And that's a pretty sharp-looking sender for a guy who hasn't played in seven weeks. Over the blue line. Ovi in front. Pass across. Strobe. Now a
4: stop
1: rebound. Oh. <laughs> what Stop. Stop. I think the thing, about, the thing about the NHL that blows my mind above all else is the Look speed of the game. JB, like on that went right off his face mask too. <laughs>
2: I mean, they were grapping.
1: Look, man, I'm here to tell you those face mask shots are annoying. Your ears ring, and like it doesn't hurt, but it's super uncomfortable. It's just super like you know, if you're wearing a helmet and somebody's smacking you in the side of the head, it's like. Stop that shit like it's it's a mild inconvenience at worst, but it's really annoying. You know what I mean? Um, So there we go. Top 10 top 10 saves from week 17. And Jimmy, I wanted to mention as well that this weekend, the NHL, you know, they do their uh, their their winter classic, which was a couple weeks ago, the outdoor game in the the stadium. And they always do their stadium series as well, which is uh, another series of outdoor games. They usually do, you know what they have, the winter classic. Then they do the heritage classic, which is an outdoor game always in Canada. And then they have their stadium series, which is another outdoor game here. This year, they're actually doing two of the stadium series. They're doing it at the same stadium on consecutive days, so kind of a doubleheader, which I think is kind of neat. And they're doing it at MetLife Stadium in New York, you know, where the Jets play. Uh, And the first game is tomorrow night at MetLife Stadium between the Flyers and the New Jersey Devils. And then the next day, Sunday at 3 p.m., the New York Islanders will take on the New York Rangers at MetLife Stadium. Uh, And, of course, both of those games are completely sold out, should be – I mean. You got the Rangers and the Flyers, or I'm sorry, you got the Devils and the Flyers and the Rangers and Islanders. Historic rivalries on both sides there should be just, and all those teams fighting for playoff spots too. So it should be a fantastic weekend of hockey there. I'll probably watch both of those games because the atmosphere and the the energy for those games, super cool to see for hockey, man. Um, So that being said, friends, we only have a couple more things we're going to cover here. Actually, one more thing we're going to cover, but we're going to do it for a couple minutes, and that is the Daytona 500 is this Sunday now? My mom, my mama was a huge NASCAR fan, um, and I am a NASCAR fan as well. So I'll probably definitely be watching at least portions of the 500. Uh, my mom, you know, when uh, when we lived at the old house, we kind of had it separated as a duplex. Me and Barbara lived downstairs, parents lived upstairs, and of course, me being the young man, always had the surround sound and the sound bar and all that. So it was kind of kind of me and mom's thing where when they'd say, "Gentlemen, start your engines." and they'd start the engines, I would crank my sound system up as loud as it could go so she could sit above us in the living room and feel the rumble and hear it. And I still do that for her. Like, even though she's been gone for almost three years now, I know she could still hear it, and I still do it for her. Mama. I'm going to do it for you again on Sunday. I will have that piping for you when they start the engines. But, uh, so for Sunday's Daytona 500, Ford has swept the front row in qualifying for the Daytona 500 with former race winners Joey Logano and Michael McDowell, shocking powerhouse Hendrick Motorsports. This is all about the team. I'd like to take credit, but I can't. Super Speedway qualifying is 100% the car, said Lugano. I disagree with that a little bit. Who won the first Daytona 500 poll for Team Penske. Finally, someone else wins the poll. The reason I disagree with that, JB, is because the qualifying for the Daytona 500 um, is not how it's usually done. You know, qualifying the cars, go take a couple laps, fastest lap, gets the poll. Daytona, they actually do dual races. It's two different races, 22 cars each race. The winner of each race uh, gets the front row. Um, so that's how the front row is determined. So when he says it's just the car, eh, when you're talking about super speedway racing, it's not just the car because stuff can go tits up in half a second in super speedway racing, unlike any other kind of racing in in NASCAR. So I I appreciate Joey being humble there, which is actually something Joey doesn't usually do, but it was, uh, (laughs) it it was, a good bit Joey on this one. Um, Hendrick drivers had won the pole at Daytona in eight of the past nine years, but the team's highest qualifier Wednesday night was Kyle Larson in third. The entire night in which only the front row for Sunday's season opening race was set belonged to Ford. Ford drivers and the manufacturer's new dark horse advanced to the final round of 10 qualifying portion with Logano and McDowell sweeping the front row. Logano turned a lap of 181.947 miles per hour as the 2015 Daytona 500 winner earned his first pole since Atlanta last year. It was also Logano's first pole on a super speedway. McDowell, the 2021 Daytona 500 winner, qualified second at 181.687 miles per hour for front row motorsports, appropriate name apparently. Larson was third in a Chevrolet after Hendrick drivers had won three straight Daytona 500 poles heading into Wednesday night. Austin Sindrick and a Ford for Penske was fourth, and followed by Hendrick teammates Chase Elliott and William Byron in Camaros. Richard Childress Racing teammates Austin Dillon and Kyle Busch qualified seventh and eighth in Chevys, followed by Ross Chastain in a Chevy for Trackhouse Racing, and Harrison Burton in a Ford for Wood Brothers Racing. Dillon won the Daytona 500 in 2018. Anthony Alfredo of Beard Motorsports and David Reagan in a special third car for RFK Racing took two of the four open spots in the field based on speed. Jimmy Johnson, a two-time Daytona 500 winner and seven-time NASCAR champion driving for his own legacy motor club, did not make it into the field and will have to race his way in through one of the two Thursday night qualifying races. Alfredo was never in danger after posing the fastest speed of all the cars not already locked into the 40-car field, but he was so fast, he was in the top five at one point, that he was never, ever in danger of not qualifying for the 500. So moving on to the actual lineup for the race, the Front row will be Joey Logano and Michael McDowell, followed by Tyler Reddick and Christopher Bell. Chase Elliott and Austin Cindric will line up 5th and 6th. 7th and 8th will be Alex Bowman and Denny Hamlin. Ninth and 10th, Carson Hosevar and Joe Hunter Nemechek. Number 11 and 12, Eric Jones and Harrison Burton. And I tell you what, friends, if Joe Hunter Nemechek doesn't scream I'm Southern to you, then I don't know what kind of name will. Number 13 and 14, <laughs> Daniel Suarez and Zane Smith. Number 15 and 16, Ty Gibbs and Brad Keselowski. Sitting 17 and 18, Kyle Larson and William Byron. 19 and 20, Chris Busher and uh, Chase Briscoe. Sitting 21 and 22, Ross Chastain and Justin Haley. 22 and 20, or 23 and 24, Jimmy Johnson and Bubba Wallace. 25 and 26, Ryan Priest and Kaz Grayla. 27 and 28, sitting will be Martin Trix Jr. and AJ Allmendinger. 29 and 30, Corey LaJoy and Josh Berry. 31 and 32. Todd Gillen at 32, you see defending NASCAR champion Ryan Blaney going to have a rough start of the season starting there 32 at Daytona, but actually sometimes starting way back in the pack at Daytona is kind of where you want to be, so when those dudes go tits up in front of you, you're kind of safe of it. Uh, 33 and 34, row number 17 will be Austin Dillon and Kyle Busch. Number 18, Ricky Stenhouse Jr. and Riley Herbst. Row number 19, Daniel Hemrick and Noah Gregson. And rounding out the field for the Daytona 500 will be Anthony Alfredo and David Reagan in the 40th spot. So the Daytona 500, always, always an exciting race. Me and Barbara actually... Uh, one year JB we want to make it make it down there to a Daytona 500 we didn't realize till we went to Cocoa Beach in Florida that Daytona is basically between Orlando and Cocoa Beach and that would be a ridiculously easy and somewhat cheap trip to pull off so we're gonna have to do that sometime man Um, so friends before we head out today uh, the video I got to leave you out today is gonna be the top 10 moments from the Daytona 500 as a matter of fact but before we do that JB I'm gonna turn it over to you for some closing words what you looking forward to this weekend And what you got going on over there, my friend? Flores here. Man,
2: I had glaucoma surgery earlier this week on one eye, and I got the other one on Saturday. So I'm just cooling out. It's going to be cold and rainy here and at the Daytona 500 as well. So I'm just taking it easy this weekend, man.
1: You got me over here thinking of... Thinking of the pastor from Friday, man, let, let, let me just get a little bit from, from my cataracts. You didn't put <laughs> in on this, man. Um, Well, I'm, I'm it, glad that went well for you, my friend. And I hope the next one goes well as yeah. well. Um, You know, I, it turns out eyes are important, you know, like. Um, <laughs> I make the jokes often, but it seriously is appalling how bad my vision is without my glasses. It's like embarrassing that I let it go so long, you know? Um, So eyes are important, my friend. I'm glad you're getting that taken care of and have thoroughly enjoyed today's episode. I definitely learned some things about private equity and, and its uh, its potential consequences for, for college sports. Um, learned a little bit about private equity myself. I loosely knew about it, but going over it the way we have today is kind of put it in my head a little bit more exactly what it is. And um, of course we've, we've had a fantastic look at women Yama. Um, the NCAA tournament will be coming up soon. Me and JB are trying to cook up some different ideas. We can present that to you and stay on top of that as it's going on. So stay tuned for that. Um, and as always friends, thank you guys so much for joining us, you know, go down there and please, please, please smash that like button for me and JB. Uh, And I want to thank you guys so very much for your support of of myself, of JB, of this show, of Badlands, just of everything in general. You guys are absolutely the best. So, like I said, the last video for today that we will leave you guys out on is the top 10 moments from the Daytona 500. So, my friends, I hope you guys have a most blessed weekend. Me and JB will be right back here Monday at noon to catch you guys up on the weekend's action. Until then, you guys be blessed, stay safe, and have a nice, relaxing, enjoyable weekend. See you soon, friends. Bye-bye.
0: It's still the world center of racing, and it's meant the world for racing families.
9: It started on the sand, and then it hit this track, where the greatest names in the sport have made your heart race. Through the years,
7: there have been highs and lows, but it's the excitement that keeps you coming back for more. NASCAR returns to its hallowed home for a spectacle that not only thrills, but reminds why your love for racing is built to last.
6: Oh. Moving to the same both lanes He needs to, to move to the top lane. lane. Go ahead to and to to be quick. Go ahead and be quick. Almirola up to cover. Dylan, where will you he go? He's to get
10: there. Oh, into Almirola. Oh, oh, Around he goes. Good.
6: good. Okay and here it comes with the number three 20 years ago 20 years of trying for earnhardt he won the daytona 500 austin dillon wins the 60th running of
8: the great american
6: race
1: i did what i had to do at the end i hate it for the 10 guys uh, we just had a run and i stayed in the gas that's what it is here at daytona but uh it is so awesome to take the three car Back to victory lane 20 years ago. This one's for Dale Earnhardt Sr. and all those senior fans.
10: I love you guys.
5: We're going to keep kicking butt the rest of the year.
8: Out of turn four, after 17 years of effort, the Daytona 500 belongs to Franklin, Tennessee's Darrell Waltrip. He's done it.
6: He's done it. Driver Darrell Waltrip, wife Stevie. Oh, I won the Daytona 500! I, I won the Daytona
8: 500! This is the
12: Daytona 500, isn't it? Don't tell me it isn't. Thank God!
8: The legacy continues. Dale Earnhardt Jr. wins the 46th Daytona 500. Got it. You want to know what winning this race means to someone? Have a look. You got a race tomorrow, you know. Yeah, it's going to be hard to do that, huh? Good God i'm daytona 500 champion i can't believe it forever dale forever yeah i'm just amazed man it's just awesome you're leading the championship standings hey, too. Right, for the first time in my life this is awesome <laughs> congratulations you, dale you dale. Dale. dale earnhardt jr is the daytona 500 champion of 2004.
7: It's up to second hamlin a, a second a problem. A problem. watch
8: a the inside the watch the inside mark truex True 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 jr three wide truex True True to the bottom Saves it! here they come to the line. This is the finish of the Daytona 500. Come on. Come on. Come on. Side by side bouncing off oh. each other. Unbelievable. Oh, yeah.
4: I think it was Denny Hamlin. I and have it. Hamlin. Hamlin
7: by an inch.
4: Denny Hamlin Oh by an inch.
6: my goodness. <clears throat> wow. Whew. I'm You're telling you. Right
4: I've got chills in my spine. That oh, was amazing.
6: Baby. Are you kidding me? I, I knew it. That's where it would have to off turn four, but I, I didn't know how it was going to happen. the closest 500 ever Time. have you ever no i've never but i'm glad i was here to see it today here he comes Earnhardt. it's the dale and dale show It's we come off of turn four you know who i'm pulling for it's dale jerry bring her at the inside dale don't let him get down there he's, he's going gonna it make it dale jerry's gonna win the daytona 500 God! Right. oh look at martha oh dear oh can you believe it
8: to oh, hey. Man. Did you oh, dad. Here you go. Take it away, Ned.
6: Super job there, Dale. I tell you, I'm really proud of you. you. You did just exactly what you had to do, like I told you, right? <laughs> That's right. Exactly like you told me all along, Dad. Thanks for everything. I appreciate it. This is a great day. Well, I tell you, your mama was watching, and she you can't believe the way she broke down when this race was over. Of course, we had to expect that. Proud no, of you, son. you came so close back, I believe it was in 63 when you ran out of fuel. I thought we'd get this one for the whole family. All right, she did great for us. Thanks. In the final stretch, Weatherly is high on the track, Lee Petty in the center, Bo-Champ below it. The checkered flag. The race is over. Both Petty and Beauchamp clocked in the identical time. Beauchamp and Petty both wheeled to the winner's circle. The -the on-the-spot, unofficial decision went to Johnny Beauchamp, pending examination of photos. The final decision was delayed, while all photographic evidence was carefully examined. The official decision gave Lee Petty, in number 42, the victory by a margin of less than one yard over Johnny Beauchamp, number
0: 73. Back straight away, final time to decide it all here this afternoon. Now, ah, Davey, what are you going to do? Uh, he's got less than half a lap to do it. And they have enough lead. And I believe it is
6: going to be a battle between the father and son. I don't think anybody Davey. else can try, but here he comes. He's going to do the it. bottom.
8: He's down low. Bobby Allison high. Davey Allison trying the inside move. Bobby Allison holds him off. They come to the stripe. And the winner of the 30th annual Great American Race, Bobby Allison. Davey Allison is son in second. Judy Allison is static. What a
0: tremendous family performance. Look at him, Davey, waving to Davey. I went down low at Grand 4, but he was too
8: strong. <laughs> did you hear Davey saying, I yep. made a try for him at turn four, but he was too strong? side as they exit the bank and head to the finish line. Richard Petty goes back in front. They both spin. They're in the wall. Petty is sliding, slamming in the wall. He's coming down toward the finish line. Will he make it? He's still moving. The car stops 300, 400 feet shy of the finish line. Pearson is still running. Here's Petty trying to fire to come across the line. David Pearson moving down through as they come to the Cutting card demolished the front end as well as car number 21. An unbelievable finish, a terrible crash. Both cars in the wall. Both drivers kept on going. Trying to take it home. It's all come down to this. Out of turn two. Donnie Allison in first. Where will Kale make his move? He comes to the inside. Donnie Allison throws the block. Kale Richard Petty is now pulling out in front, Darrell Waltrip is in second, A.J. Boyd is in third, here they come, Waltrip trying to slingshot, Petty is out in front at the line, Waltrip inside, Petty wins it! Down on pit Road, it has gone crazy, the Petty crew is out there jumping up and down, He has won it! Richard Petty has won sick daytona 500 and the crowd here are going
4: absolutely
8: mad the teppers overflowing they're angry they know they have lost and what a bitter defeat a couple of very hard men very hardly upset it, it's just unbelievable you know come down
6: here last week and uh, kyle won then we come down here and look up and win this thing hey steve What's your doctor going to say? <laughs> I don't, I ain't worried about the doctor, but I'm feeling, I'm feeling good, no matter what he's...
7: I guess. It's a slow car
6: up ahead. And there's trouble coming off a of turn two. Some cars get tangled. It might be this. Whoever gets back to the start-finish line, they'll get the white and the yellow together. Lake Speed and John Andretti tangle as the leaders head for turn number three. Andretti and Spencer got together. This could be the Daytona 500. Bobby Labonte goes to the outside. Labonte up high. Earnhardt uses the left car of Rick Bass to the as a pick. 20 years of trying 20 years of frustration Dale Earnhardt will come to the caution flag to win the Daytona 500 finally the most anticipated moment in racing if John Elway can win the Super Bowl Dale Earnhardt said he could win the Daytona 500 and if he comes around under caution to complete this final lap the taste of long awaited victory will be his.
8: All right, here he comes out of his car and listen to this. Right! Two decades he's waited for this moment, and it's here.
9: The poorest way to face life. Is to face it with a sneer. There are many men who feel a kind of twisted pride and cynicism. There are many who confine themselves to criticism of the way others do what they themselves dare not even attempt. There is no more unhealthy being, no man less worthy of respect, than he who either really holds or feigns to hold an attitude of sneering disbelief toward all that is great and lofty, whether in achievement or in that noble effort which, even if it fails, comes to second achievement. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat.
1: Friends, first off, thank you so very much for joining us. We truly and deeply appreciate your continued support and love shown to us here at Badlands Media. Don't forget to hit the thumbs up on this video and help get this show on the Rumble leaderboard. Another way you can support Badlands for free? Become a Badlander. How do you do that? Head on over to Badlandsmedia.tv, click connect from the top menu, and then click be a Badlander. Once you're registered, you can download clips from your favorite Badlands shows to share on your social media accounts. You can also print out flyers and stickers that you can hand out at an event and more. Let's keep growing our community because we are the news now and we take that very seriously. Thank you again from Badlands for your support and your love. It is appreciated more than you know.